At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The reality we live in can be a very strange place. Most of the time, fact being stranger than fiction. How will we ever start to understand this reality we live in unless we question everything? Join me and a guest as we unravel the mysteries of this reality, one topic at a time. This is Inquiries of Our Reality with Shane Jones. Welcome, deep thinkers and inquiring minds, to the one, the only, inquiries of our reality. I appreciate you guys being here, as always. And uh, before we get into the show today, I got some updates on some new stuff going on around here. So um, I should be dropping, hopefully soon, the Patreon-exclusive show entitled Inquiries, Thoughts, and Theories. I may drop the first episode onto the main feed so that you guys can come and check it out. But uh, the intention is that that's going to be a Patreon exclusive show. And with that show, you're going to pretty much get a deep dive into the weird theories that I come up with, uh, some weird theories that I come across that I want to discuss and give my opinions on, and some random thoughts and ideas that I happen to pop up with during the day. That show's more than likely going to be just me, and it's going to be kind of like monologue style, but going pretty deep into some weird, deep stuff like uh, you guys seem to enjoy as far as uh, this show goes. And uh, it seems that most of you guys enjoy some of the theories that I get into, so I figured I'd kind of do like a little uh, subsection and kind of put it all in one place for you guys. But without further ado, uh, try to move this thing along so we can get into this awesome super long interview that I got for you guys today, but trust me, it goes by really quick because this guy's a killer guy to interview. So if you guys haven't already, I'd appreciate it if you guys uh, wouldn't mind dropping a review or a rating for the show, hopefully five stars. And uh, my intention, of course, like I always mention, is that uh, once I get a little bit banked up here and there, I'm going to sit and I'm going to read them all off on the show to you guys so I can give you guys an awesome shout out for you guys' awesome reviews. Uh, if you guys don't mind sharing the show with any friends that you know are into weird topics, uh, even sharing on social media, definitely appreciate it. That's one way to help the show grow pretty quickly. Um, if you guys aren't already following the show on social media, definitely go and check that out if you want to get some awesome updates on the show, know when episodes drop, if you don't already have your podcast app to set up to tell you when new episodes drop. Uh, if you guys want to bounce on and have some awesome conversations with some awesome people, you guys can come and check out the Discord and the Telegram. Uh, if anybody's interested in being a guest on the show, whether you're an author, researcher, experiencer, conspiracy theorist, uh, anything that's weird and deep, I'm definitely into. Uh, you know, I kind of 
classify this show as an open-minded talk show. So that being said, anybody that feels that they could fit into that category that wants to have an awesome conversation, uh, don't hesitate to hit me up. Uh, There's multiple ways to do so, of course. Uh, One way is through social media. That's the one I'm the most active on, primarily Instagram. Uh, You can also email the show at inquiriesofourrealitypodcast at outlook.com. If you guys aren't already checking out Bizarre Encounters, that's my other show that I do with Oren and Jenny to phenomenal co-host. Uh, we got a bunch of awesome stuff going on over there. We're building that stuff up. We have our deep dive starting to pan out uh, across our feed over there. Uh, so we got the Dogman feed. That one's already live and active if you guys want to check that out. Uh, it's going to be kind of like a saga. So we're building that one up, doing it piece by piece. But a lot of awesome work going on and popping up over there. Uh, if you guys want to check out all of the other extended things that I do, um, including another awesome show that's going to be popping up that's going to be a YouTube-based show called Strange Realities with uh, the awesome dudes from Strange Brew. Uh, go and check out Open Minds Media for any updates on anything going on with that. Uh, if you guys want to support the show, there's multiple ways to do so, uh, one of which is through Patreon. Uh, there I have multiple tiers set up now. Um, you'll get early access to the show. You'll get live feeds of the show. Uh, you'll get something that I call the live replay, which is if you can't make it to the live of the show, I post the video format of it afterwards so you guys can watch it almost like you are going to the live, but you know, a replay of the live, of course. Um, there's also going to be exclusive giveaways for specific tiers. Um, there's discounts for the merch store, of course, if you guys are interested in checking that stuff out. And uh, I'm always building it up and willing to add new things. Of course, there's going to be the Patreon exclusive show too. Um, but yeah, if there's anything else that you guys want to see for the Patreon, don't hesitate to throw the ideas at me because I would love to hear them. Uh, you can also donate to the show directly if you'd like to, to help upgrade some equipment and uh, hopefully just keep progressing, making the sound quality better, everything that I could possibly make better and eventually hopefully do this full time so I could put even more research and time into all the show and hopefully eventually get to a point where I can almost drop an episode every single day for you guys. Um, but if you guys want to do it that way, uh, you can donate through Red Circle, Cash App, PayPal, Venmo, all that stuff set up, all available down in the show description, of course. Uh, the third way that you guys can support the show is by going and checking out the uh, merch store. There you'll find awesome designs for anything that fits under the Open Minds Media umbrella category. If you guys are in the market for some other awesome merch, uh, you guys can go and cr- check out Crypto Theology. Uh, there you'll find some awesome cryptid gear, some alien gear, and some paranormal stuff. And he's always adding new designs, always got some new stuff going on. So if there's nothing that you like currently, I guarantee you within a week or two, you'll probably find something else that you really, really dig. Uh, everything that I've mentioned, all available under the link tree. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and spat it off in the beginning of the show. So so go down to the show description and click the link and follow it off to whatever you guys are trying to check out. And uh, with that, welcome to the show, Don Schneider from Unacknowledged and Unknown. How are you doing today? Real good, Shane. For anybody that doesn't quite know who you are, why don't you kind of give them a rough idea about who you are and what you do exactly? Well, I'm uh, uh, an investigator, an amateur investigator to into things that are unknown, to, uh, subject matter, like uh, basically uh, r- religions, ancient religions, uh, Bigfoot, uh, unknown cryptids. Uh, to some degree, uh, the information regarding uh, Billy Meyer contacts and information. And uh, I've been doing this uh, regarding the Bigfoot research since uh, 1979, when it was when I got serious about it, uh, after my first encounter in, in 78. And then, of course, uh, been doing that sort of ever since, among other things. Uh, the Bigfoot research uh, was sort of the things that trigger that allowed me to 
come into contact with other things that have nothing to do with Bigfoot. So it was sort of uh, an event in my life that put me in contact with a lot of other things. So I've, uh, I've been doing that for uh, now over almost 43, 44 years. So that's uh, sort of a thumbnail. And uh, I'm retired now, but uh, still staying busy and active. And so, yeah, I, uh, I just, I'm a regular guy who, uh, content creator, investigator. I said, I put, I put all my, all the information I document, audio, video, my experiences. Uh, I, it's on my YouTube channel, Unacknowledged and Unknown, freely available. Uh, I also belong to uh, several Facebook groups. Uh, one is uh, American Cryptid Research uh, Team, which uh, there's, probably only five, four to five active members and we're all over, we're, we're all over the United States. So we're uh, still trudging forward, trying to do just evidence collecting and uh, behavior studies on these, what people allegedly call unknown creatures. So that's uh, what I've been doing for uh, intensively for probably the last uh, 10 years, at least just regarding Bigfoot and, and unknowns. And uh, so that's that's sort of a nutshell of where, uh, what I've been doing. I'd like to uh, be able to dig into a little bit of each of it, but I guess the best spot to start would be to start with your first encounter and what exactly kind of got you riding the wave of digging into all your different research and what kind of sparked your interest exactly. Yeah, uh, that probably the, my first encounter was in Illinois. Uh, I was morale hunting not far from one of the state parks in West Central Illinois. And uh, like everybody else does, we go morale hunting, mushrooming, usually in uh, uh, anywhere from uh, May to early June. And uh, I was out there mushroom hunting with, I had my dog with me and I, uh, something came crashing through this uh, foliage of this uh, huge oak tree. This oak tree had foliage on it that was probably 20 feet in diameter or more and the branches were almost touching the ground. This thing came crashing through the branches and uh, I was about 30 feet uh, on this sort of game trail approaching it. And my dog was not even 10 feet ahead of me. And my dog did a, an, a he, he did a way at this point headed back to me. And I saw this silhouette of this thing. Uh, we have no bear in Illinois. So, you know, my estimation at the time was, is that a bear standing there the silhouette in this foliage that had shoulders and was uh, just sort of concealed in the shadow of this, the foliage of this huge oak tree. And it was, uh, again, it was spring and the leaves were coming up and it was starting to green up. And uh, I saw it and I was like, uh, I wanted to walk toward it. But part, something to me was just like, don't just stop. Don't go any further. And my dog, he, he walked straight back to me and he wanted to leave. He was like uh, in like flight mode. And at that point I was like, uh, this thing stayed concealed, would not come beyond the edge of that tree line. It just stayed there. So at that point I didn't, you know, I was like, what am I dealing with? And then I recently, I, not shortly after that, I ran into a person uh, who lived in the area and she told me the story about this creature called Harry Larry who was raiding the dumpsters at these various cement plants and, uh, and described it as a Bigfoot. Uh, and the term was the only thing I could relate to at that time was 
the uh, in search of episodes with uh, Leonard Nimoy, I believe was the, he was the host of the show and they would have film clips of the Patterson Gimlin film. And that's sort of my mind went there, but I didn't know much about the 1967 Patterson Gimlin film other than I had uh, might've seen something that looks similar to that. As far as the outline of it, I didn't see it like walk across. It just, but that was my first encounter. And, and then of course uh, I ended up moving to New Mexico uh, a little less than a year after that, about 11 months later. And that's when I had my primary experience. That's when I really thought that I had a crazy encounter and it happened uh, as a result of, I had my weekends off and I was, uh, I was living in a place called now called it Santa Clara, New Mexico, but, uh, then it was called Central, and it was uh, a hideout in the uh, back in this in the 1800s, uh, post Civil War. It was a hideout of a lot of outlaws, including uh, Billy the Kid and uh, uh, Clay Allison, and a lot of uh, famous outlaws lived in my town, which I didn't know. But uh, on my weekends, I would go camping in the mountains, the Black Range Mountains, uh, which is part of the Gila National Wilderness area. And at the time, I had a I had a pet dog. I had a pet uh, Samoy, and uh, they basically looked like a, an all white sort of like wolf like dog. And I took uh, I went camping in it near a town in uh, in the, near the Black Range. There's a town in the Black Range Mountains, west by slightly northwest of where I lived, called Mimbras. And uh, you go through these basically uh cutbacks to get to this area this this parking lot above the ridges and you're looking down what i call to these observation points miles away and this one area that i parked it had an observation or outlook to this area uh it's still there to this day it's called the kneeling nun monument so i parked my car put my backpack on and hiked down the mountain with my dog. And that was probably an 11 mile hike. I did what I call minimal, what they call now, uh, now I think they call it uh, minimum impact camping. But uh, so I just had basically a bedroll and all the supplies I needed in my backpack. I think I had a 60 or 55 pound backpack. Hiked down the mountain with my dog and uh, got to a draw below the mountain with a creek bed. And then uh, after I walked down the base of this mountain across this creek bed, on the other side was sort of a clearing surrounded by uh, junipers and creosote and scrub oaks and some cactus. And I gathered wood for a fire, made my camp there that night, and uh, ended up... uh, because you're in the mountain valley, night came early. I think uh, it started getting dark around 9.30, 9.45. And I remember sitting, uh, had finished cooking. Uh, my dog was standing next to me. And uh, the, uh, the way I came down the mountain, there is what I call a scree feel. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with that, but it's a lot of shale and loose rock. Mm-hmm. And I even remember walking down that myself when I first entered my, uh, get, got to the point where I wanted to set up base camp. So you had to be careful with your footing because you'd, you'd slide through the scree field. You'd end up 
hurting yourself. So I had to sort of pick my way through the scree field. So here it is hours later. It's going on 9.30, quarter to 10. And I hear what sounds like something, somebody, and I did think it was a person at the time. Uh, now it's it's approaching dusk. It's, it's getting to the point where you can barely see. And I could hear this walking coming down the side of the mountain uh, where I actually walked down from my car 11 miles further up on top of the mountain. There was a pull-off area. So I'm waiting to see this guy's person's flashlight. I figured it's dark now. There's no way they're walking down this mountain in total darkness. So I'm, I'm listening. I can hear the, the walking, the steps, the footsteps. And right about the point where I descended, there was a little, what I call a, a butte or a buttress, which is basically an overlook, probably 80 to maybe 90 feet above the valley where I was camped. And it came out to a precipice. And you could look down from that point directly at where I was camping. And I had a small fire going. I hear this thing walk out to the butte. I hear it's walking on the scree field. And I could just hear crunch, crunch, crunch. It walks right out to the butte. And I'm looking up. And, of course, I couldn't see it because it's not skylighted. So the first thing I say is, who is that? You know, who goes there? No response. I look over to my dog and my dogs, he's next, he's like pinned next to my knee. He's like right up against my leg. He was not going after it. So my first conclusion was, well, it must not be a black bear. Generally, my, my dog and most dogs will run after bears and chase them, chase them away or chase them into you. He didn't want anything to do with it. And uh, he was basically focused on this thing up on the butte. And as he, he started doing this deep sort of throated growling thing. And the next thing I know, the thing walked off the butte, walked over to the base of the foothill at the bottom part of that mountain and walked down that scree field, which put it about 45, 50 feet from that, that creek bed. And then I just heard it just like boldly, brazenly walk from that point until it hit the creek bed. And the creek bed was probably... I want to say 15 to 20 feet wide, a few inches deep of flowing water, crystal clean water. And I just heard kerplosh, kerplosh, kerplosh. And it walked right, right up to the perimeter of my camp, just, just to the point where it was just beyond the fire, beyond, beyond the light of the fire. So there it was, walked boldly in. I couldn't see it. So I retrieved my flashlight. I had a bedroll. I had my flashlight next to my bedroll. I pulled the flashlight out. I turned the flashlight on. Uh, my flashlight was strong enough to maybe throw a, a maybe a 20-foot beam, if, if that. And this thing, it was beyond that point, just beyond my flashlight beam. And, uh, and so this went on all night. This went on from 9.30 quarter to 10 till 4.30 in the morning when it was started getting dust, when it started getting a little lighter. Uh, it was uh, circled my camp. I saw silhouette a couple times behind some of the scrub oaks of what appeared to be something standing on its hind legs, just a silhouette. Uh, we had a full 
uh, starlit night, no cloud cover. But again, you're sort of between these mountains and it's, you know, you have all these shadows going on. Mm. So I'm, I have my light shining at it. It's staying beyond my flashlight beam uh, all night long. This thing, I thought, apparently I thought it was at that time, 1979, I thought it was one creature. So my dog would give me an indication of where it was. It would be looking at my 12 o'clock and then my dog would move and would change direction and be looking at the 10 o'clock or three o'clock. And this went on, my dog, this went on until four 30 in the morning. I was like doing circles. I was basically on my knees trying to sort of keep a low profile. And I was just basically next to my fire, which had died out. It looked like my, after this thing entered the camp, I basically only had a few pieces of wood left and branches and small twigs. I threw them in and probably not even within the hour, I had embers. And and I before this thing entered camp, I was going to grab my flashlight and go out and gather wood. Well, I never had the opportunity. So this 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 thing, me thinking it's circling the camp, my dog's changing position. As my dog changes position, I change position. I had a choke collar on my dog with one of those little tag chains on the choke collar. Mm-hmm. So I'm hanging on to the tag chain. Uh, and at one point, it got so tense that I put my hand inside his choke collar. And th- those are the choke collars that uh, probably people don't use anymore, but they had the claws on them. So when you tighten down on them, they actually dig into your, your neck. And now I think uh, uh, they consider it, uh, an- they're, they're not humane. So they, they, they don't allow, I don't think they sell them anymore. Mm. But back then I, I had my hand inside the choke collar and my dog, I didn't have to restrain him. He sat, he was sitting next to me, growling, changing position. Wherever the thing was, he would change position. And I would just follow along with him. And I'll tell you, from nine, quarter to 10 till 4.30 in the morning, no sleep. I, uh, had a, a, I had a knife that I pulled out of my sheath and held that in my hand the whole time. This thing circled. And in my mind, I'm thinking, how the hell is it getting from 12 o'clock? And then within not even probably seconds, five, 10 seconds, it's now it's behind me. And I couldn't hear it moving, which blew my mind because when it came into camp, later on, retrospect, looking back of it, back at it, it want, it didn't give a crap that it hurt, that I heard it enter camp. But then when it started circling me, it was circling me in silence, or at least I thought it was. I came to the conclusion after I thought about it probably a week or two later that there was probably more than one individual. There's probably two, maybe three. And so uh, I I came to the conclusion that was really, I was, that they, that had to be Bigfoot at the time. Uh, And and I had uh, some occurrences happening that day when I first got to camp, I after I set up camp, I threw my backpack on and I went on a short hike in that mountain valley. And I heard wood knocks, and I didn't know what wood knocks were at the time. I thought there was some guy uh, along this creek bed. When I followed this creek bed out and went on my hike, I thought there were some individuals, one or two people like myself that were camping, that were down there. And in my mind, I'm trying to sort of do the mental gymnastics of somebody was down there with a hammer or hatchet and was like cutting up wood in the middle of this forest, 11 miles from where 
I parked and I, and, and I remember I was the only car up there. There was nobody other, no other people up there. So in my mind, I'm thinking, who is that? Who, who is down there in the forest? There must be a vagrant, you know, and the nearest town had to be, well, it was an hour from 45 minutes to an hour from where I drove from Santa Clara to this section of mountains in Mimbres. It was a good 45 minute drive. Well, there are no communities. So in my mind, I'm thinking, is there a vagrant living in the middle of nowhere? And he's got a hammer. See, your mind does funny <laughs> things. You think about, you think about trying to explain it away to yourself. And uh, and every time I look to where these knocks were coming from, the knocks would stop. And then I turn away and I start walking again, and then I'd hear it knocking. So that was sort of my first sort of stick in my water into the swimming pool type event where I was like, what is going on here? What is this, you know, what, what did I encounter in Illinois? Now, what am I, was I surrounded by more than one individual? Cause there's no way this thing was doing circles around me in the middle of the night at that type of, at that speed. So later on, when I, I talked to other people that had Bigfoot encounters, they always, I was, the same subject matter kept coming up. Oh, they're never alone. If you see one, there's always another one or two watching, watching it. It's the ones you don't see. And I was always like, ah, yeah. But then I would connect the dots back to my encounter and go, well, that explains everything. And then when 4.30 rolled around in the morning, I they left like ninjas. They left silently. They didn't like walk out like where I could hear them walk away. So it was like they came in brazen, left quietly, and I was dumbfounded. <laughs> Gone without sleep that whole night. Had a hike back up the the eleven mile hike back up the mountain, and it's not like a straight up hike. You know, you have to sort of like like the way you ski, you sort of slalom, you sort of you go up, and then you sort of walk, you know, parallel to the summit, and then you find another spot, and then you sort of walk back and forth, and that's how you. That's why. As a crow flies, it was probably a six or seven mile hike, but there's no way you could climb straight up this mountain. Mm. So I know I dropped down an altitude at that point. I probably dropped from, I want to say, 8,500 to maybe 9,200 feet down to the valley floor. So it was, uh, it was uh, you know, I estimated I had a pedometer with me at the time. I didn't even use it, but I could sort of figure out based on step counts approximately how far i had gone and i figured 11 miles was pretty accurate uh which at that time i was in my 20s that's 11 miles was no big deal i had done a lot of what i call uh uh minimal camping where i just throw a backpack on usually had a companion with me like a dog or another person but uh that was what sort of triggered my interest into Bigfoot, I was like, how can these things be living, in some cases, not far from civilization, maybe almost adjacent, and people somehow, like I did that at that point, explain it away as a vagrant, a homeless person, some big, tall person who happens to be, you know, over seven feet tall, uh, just hanging around in the wilderness, and, and I... I estimated the one I saw in New Mexico wasn't extremely tall. I want to say it was six and a half, not even seven feet. But 
that that's the one that walked into camp when I was able to sort of sort of do a guesstimate of how tall it was when it was it was behind these shrub uh, scrub oaks which scrub oaks don't really get tall you know mm-hmm. they uh, they call that that area where I was at they call it the land of the back shade because you have to sit down behind a creosote scrub oak to get shade and uh, and some do get you know seven or eight nine feet tall but they're relatively small they're small trees but this thing was like standing off behind the edge of that tree and I could see its silhouette and I'm thinking wow that thing's taller than me you know and it walked into camp in total darkness without a flashlight which sort of it it, it mystified me I was though I, I probably spent months after that thinking who I mean, I, my eyes can adjust to the dark. If I have a full moon and a lot of starlight, you can pretty much see very well. But there, this was the conditions at that night where you could not see without a flashlight. You, and, and so that opened up why I looked into the research regarding Bigfoot and started to investigate him because I later on discovered they see pretty well at night compared to us, where we're like babies stumbling around, you know, without a flashlight is it almost like a cat where they can kind of see a little bit in both well not a little bit but they can see pretty well in light and they can see pretty well in the dark kind of a thing yeah yeah i don't even like to use people like to use the term they're uh that they're basically uh they're they they come out only at night uh i think they're both i think they're uh they see very well at night and they also move around a day. And so uh, there years ago, 30 years ago, people would tell you, well, Bigfoot only come around. They only come out, you know, they're only active at night. That's not true. They're active at during the day too. I think they're more active at night because they count on the fact that we can't see very well. Uh, but that doesn't preclude the fact that they are not active at, during the day. They are active during the day. So they're not, uh, you know, so they're both. They're diurnal and nocturnal. I think they do both. They just uh, assumably just keep their it. distance during the day because of the la- the sake of vision. So they'll, they'll keep their distance more during the day or at night. They know they can get c- a little bit closer and they'll mess with you a little bit more. Um, oh, definitely. Still be coverage, of course. Yeah, exactly. They uh, they count on the fact that uh, we're uh, we don't have those abilities, that visual capabilities at night and during the day. They uh, they put a lot more obstacles and layers of things between them. Uh, and they do at night. They still sort of hide themselves at night and conceal. I've seen them on thermal at night. I've seen them uh, with my naked eye at night crawl out from behind trees where they're not concealed and yet be on all fours. So you don't know if you have this huge, like, uh, mountain lion or black cat crawling up toward you and then you whip out your thermal and you see it's a bigfoot on thermal on all fours that's shocking and that was uh my first instances uh my first incidences of seeing bigfoot on thermal was actually in illinois because uh back uh when i lived out west you could buy thermals i mean they were probably first generation and they were probably really not if they even had them back then i don't even know i don't believe they did they might have had night vision but when i bought got my first thermal camera and it was more of a it was more of a spotter it's uh didn't record video didn't didn't take pictures 
uh, but you you could use it for coyote hunting, uh, things of that nature, vermin hunting at night. But uh, when I saw my first Bigfoot on thermal, I was like, uh, I was like, oh, that's what I was looking at without thermal at nighttime when I had spotted it with with my naked eye. I was like, okay, that's that silhouette. Now I could see it in in unabashed, glowing, uh, just uh, hot black or or hot white, and you're like looking at it going, holy cow, there it is. Uh, and so when that, that happened on a few occasions where I saw it on thermal, and then in the same area, uh, I won't even say it's the same creature, different creatures crawling into camp where we uh, saw, both of us saw one crawl into our camp on thermal. Another time we saw one crawl into camp without the thermal. We were just sitting there doing what I call cold camps, which uh, I haven't done any of those for a while. I, I do nighttime observations with uh, parabolic and, and thermal and night vision. But we have, back then, we were two, two to three of us would go in and set up a cold camp in the middle of a forest and just pick a spot that we felt there was high activity and just sit there during the course of the night with our our vision, you know, our uh, thermal and night vision and just wait for them to find us, which they always did. And then they would, uh, the first time I did this, the gentleman I went with, uh, he, he had seen them during the daytime and at dusk. And I believe potentially at night also, but his were naked eye sightings. He just saw them with his eyes and uh, described them to me and gave me some drawings of what he saw. And so I said, I'd like to go to this area. And said, he said, okay, I'll take you. He said, well, I'll take you there and uh, to see Bigfoot. And I had to clarify that. I said, okay, you're taking me to see Bigfoot evidence, right? <laughs> he goes, no, no, I'm taking you there to see Bigfoot. So that sort of had, you know, I was like, okay, I'm all up. I'm all for that. I want to see Bigfoot. Up at that point, I had been like looking for evidence, like everybody else, the prints, the the structures, you know, hair, all the trace evidence. Now I have an opportunity to see the thing that creates all this trace evidence. So that night we went in, uh, set up a camp near some structure. We found some arches with some branches leaned up on the arches. And I said, you know what? Uh, we need to come back at nighttime, and, and there's a spot where there was a fall-down log about 45 feet from that, that, that arch, that structure that I believe they manipulated and made. So he agreed. He had hunted that area. He knew the area way better than I did, and he said, we'll come back. So we came back a week later and went into that area, went right to that spot, and we set up camp. We both sat there with our backs against the log. And uh, I had my FLIR, I had, had audio, I had a digital recorder, and I had my daytime camera. And so we're just sitting there, and I'm looking through my thermal straight ahead at my 12 o'clock, and about 95, 90 feet from me at my 12 o'clock, I had it on, uh, I believe it was called, uh, it was called, uh, Phosphorus orange was a palette I picked. It was a real bright orange with like yellow in it. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at 
I'm looking through my thermal with this, and 95 feet ahead of me, there is this tree. We estimated the next morning this tree couldn't have been more than maybe 13, 14 inches in diameter. You know, it wasn't massive, but it was 13 inches in diameter. I'm looking 95 feet ahead with my thermal, and this thing leans out, has its hand around. I can see its hand in front of the tree, and it leans out like this. And I see its whole head, part of its chest, its shoulder, and part of its hip and part of the top of its leg. And it leans out, and it's just like, you know, hello, here I am. You know, it was so obvious. You know, hello, here I am. And I'm like, I have my camera, and the guy next to me, Dave, I go, Dave, Dave, here, look. And I give it to him. I give him the camera. And he looks, and he goes, oh, my. He says, yep, there it is. You know, so he, he confirmed it. And at one point, he goes, I was like, let me see, let me see, you know. And he's like, oh, my God. And I go, what? He goes, he says, it lean, he says it. It stepped away from the tree, the direction it was leaning in, and took one step and then, like, turned around, and it walked away from him. And he's watching it, and I go, what do you see? He says, I see it from the bottom of its butt, bottom of its butt cheeks, up to its head. And I go, what, what does it look like? And he made the reference to a talk show host at the time who was a big, big woman. And he goes, she's got... He says, it's got a butt like her, you know, and I can't say it on air. I'm not going to, I don't want your, you to get in trouble, but. Uh, we can he, just he say goes, it's uh, go, as wow. thick as the Mothman ass on the statue. <laughs> yes. Yes. He says he's got, he says, it's like two. How did he put it? He says, it's like a, a bunch of raccoons and a burlap sack fighting with each other. <laughs> and, and I says, really? So he's, it's walking away. And, uh, and so, you know, I was excited. So I'm like, holy shit. So now we were not even, it was not even an hour, 45 minutes to an hour after the sunset when this happened. So I'm going, holy cow, the night's just starting. What, what are we in for? Well, we had two more sightings after that, again, with the thermal of another creature. We don't know. It could have been the same one. But uh, again, I'm sitting there and we're discussing what just happened. In probably an hour, I want to say an hour had gone by, an hour and a half, and I'm I'm panning with my thermal going from left to right, and I'm sitting there on the ground, and it was a cool night. It was probably, it was above freezing. It was uh, late fall, and I want to say it was probably in the high 30s. So we're all bundled up, you know, we're all, we're sitting on the ground, and uh, I see... We have weeds that were probably, we have brush or weeds that are probably 18 inches to two feet tall in the surrounding area where we're sitting uh, basically with a bunch of saplings sparsely sort of in the habitat, a lot of saplings and bigger trees, but it's all filled with brush. So you have areas, these gaps between the trees that you might have 15, 20, 30 foot gaps between some of these trees and saplings. So I'm looking with my thermal into the left of center uh, off to my, I guess it would be my, my 10 o'clock. I see the top, what appears to be back now, the back, top of the shoulders, top of the buttocks or haunches of the upper thigh, 
no head, no tail, just this back, shoulders, top of the thighs of this thing crawling on all fours through the weeds from like 30 feet away from us, going from left to right. And at that point, I'm watching it and I'm going, oh, shit, there's another one. And it's crawling. And we had barely, we had a slight breeze or wind that night. So you could hear sort of the rustling of the wind through the, through the, through the brush and sort of rustling through the leaves on the leaf litter on the floor. This thing was moving so slowly, but now that I spotted it with thermal, my ears perked up and I started intently listening and I could hear every now and then you could hear the sort of, uh, it rustle a little more Then you realize, oh, that's not the wind. That's this thing crawling. (laughs) So they move every time the wind sort of picked up, it would move. It would move with the wind. And uh, so you couldn't quite hear it. So if you do, if I wouldn't have had the thermal, I would have just thought, oh, that's just the wind blowing through the leaf litter. And I would have just ignored it. I was so, even wondering, too, if they intentionally are crawling so that you mistake them as other animals. So it's not even just like them trying to be out of sight, but also so that you'll yes. kind of think it's another animal and possibly get out of the area without being alerted that it might be a Sasquatch. You might think it's like a if bear. If we or wouldn't like, have had an overcast condition, yeah, I think that's the case. I think if we wouldn't have had overcast conditions and we would have had, you know, half moon or a third or quarter moon and we had a lot of starlight, no cloud cover, it would appear as a black silhouette. The first thing you would have thought is that's a cougar, that's a mountain lion, or that's a wolf slinking through the the weeds, but because we couldn't see it all. I mean, you could see, you could barely see your hand in front of your face because it was overcast that night. So when I saw this thing crawling from left to right, it was moving at a fairly good clip, uh, about as whatever a human being walks two two and a half miles an hour. It was moving about that at that pace. It wasn't moving fast, but it wasn't moving slow. So it's, it's moving through these weeds. I see the shape of, sort of the butt and then the back and then the shoulders. And I'm trying to sort of figure where is the head? Where's the tail? Cause I'm in my mind, I'm thinking that's a wolf. That's a mountain lion. Cause we have cougars uh, and wolves in Illinois. So I, I hand the camera to Dave and I go, I says, look right where I was pointing. And, and I got my hand there. I was pointing right there. So he, he takes the camera, looks there and he goes, I see it. So he follows it. And it goes to our left. There were a series of hills. And the hills had ravines between them. It crawled right into this ravine uh, or draw between these hills. And there was a bunch of what I call deadfall that had fallen off the sides of these hills into the valley and created this big brush pile of interlocked trees and branches and whatever. So Dave's describing it to me. He's watching it and he goes, there it goes. He said, it just crawled on all fours behind that brush pile. Oh, my God. He says, it went behind the brush pile, disappeared. And then a second later, he goes, it's peeking its head over the top of the brush pile. I could see its big orange head peek up over the top, looking right back. He said, it's looking back at us. So that that's sort of uh, the tip of the iceberg of some of the sightings I've had that I've been able to enjoy and experience and and, and it was never fearful. It was always like, wow, that's a great, that's a discovery. That's part of the behavior that I, I had to try to understand and get my, he- my head wrapped around to say, well, why are they hiding during total darkness? 
why are they, you know, spider crawling in foot and a half, two foot tall weeds? If I went into these weeds and I belly crawled, that's what it would sort of look like. You know, but this thing was so later on, we're talking about it. And I go, I think it's the same creature we just saw in thermal leaning up from behind the tree. And he goes, I don't know. He says, I think there's, he he at that point had seen eight, nine. And then he saw two in another occasion. He was surrounded by eight or nine. And then he saw two in another occasion uh, during a daytime sighting that were like standing off on the edge of a tree line, one partially behind a tree and the other one next to it, much bigger. And just stood there like statues uh, as him and his buddy who were hunting walked by. And his buddy goes, hey, Dave, look over there. Look at there's two of them. And Dave looks over and sure enough, there was two of them. So when he told me this, I was like, well, you're, you're going to show me Bigfoot or are you going to show me a figment of your imagination? So I, 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 I as sort of a beginning researcher, I had to go, I got to eliminate all possibilities. I got to go find out if this guy's story is whole. And sure enough, it held water. And uh, he, he, uh, and then we went back uh, several times after that and did cold camps and we had them crawl into camp one night where we, uh, we, we didn't need the floor. They came, they crawled, one crawled right into camp right in front of us, came up around uh, what they call a hedge apple tree and just crawled in front of the tree. And when I saw this thing just sort of like grow in size as it was approaching us, we both stood up and I go, who is that? And Dave's like, we see you. And it just, it stopped. And instead of like, most creatures would turn around and just turn around and go the opposite way, the way it came from this thing, like crab crawled backwards and did the crab crawl backwards to behind the tree. And so we're trying to suss this out that night. And I said, well, we're going to have to check out where this thing came from the next morning. And sure enough, there was a ravine, uh, what I call a runoff ravine that ran, that basically, uh, took all the runoff water to the creek bed. Well, this runoff ravine, when you walk down into it, I'm five foot 10. I could stand in there and you could not see me from our vantage point because I was in this sort of depression where this ravine was. So it came into that ravine just beyond where we were sitting and then came up out of the ravine and then crawled up behind this tree, which blocked our view to it. And it approached approached us strategically, just like just like special forces would do, and then crawled around the tree. And that's when I was watching the base of the tree. All of a sudden, the tree got looked like the base of the tree got wide, and I'm like, "Wait a second. Well, we had starlight that night, and I don't think we had. We might have had a sliver moon or maybe no moon, but I you could see fairly well with your naked eye. And I saw the scene get bigger. And it was totally silent. And uh, as big as it was, I don't believe it was a black bear. It definitely, it was not a wolf. Uh, and then at the beginning of that same night, right at dusk, a few hours later, it was it would get dark around. I believe it was, we were there in late summer, early fall. It was getting dark around 6... 6 30 5 30 6 o'clock in the evening right at dusk 
we hear like uh, seven or eight of these voice. They were like voices, though. They weren't like animals, but they were like uh, it was like whoop, 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 you know, like from like five or six or seven or eight different creatures all together doing these whoops in unison. And they were probably, I want to say, 60, 50, 60 yards from where we were. And there was three of us, uh, me, Mitch, and Dave. And uh, we're looking at each other. You guys hear that? And uh, and Dave's like, oh, they must be getting ready to hunt. So he knew they were there. And then, of course, a few hours later, that's when we, uh, while we were sitting, observed this creature crawl up out, well, came out of the ravine, we found out later, and then came up around that hedge apple tree and then just on all fours crawled up. And had we not stood up and just sat there, I think this creature thought we were sleeping. (laughs) We were just sitting there and we had fallen asleep. And I think, uh, uh, I think it would have checked us out. Probably our backpacks were sitting next to us. It would have probably gone through all our stuff. Who knows? Uh, I even told Dave, I says, you know, it might've grabbed, uh, might have grabbed our ankle and tried to drag one of us off had we not stood up. It got within 30 feet, though, and we stood up and we saw it. And the third guy, Mitch, he was on the other side of the log where we were sitting, and he was uh, sleeping in his sleeping bag. Uh, and that night it got down to 18 degrees. It got pretty cold. So we cold camp. We don't have fires. We don't use flashlights. If we have to see something with a light, for whatever reason, we use red lights. But we don't like like leave our red lights on. We just we only use them if we have to. So we uh, we do something that's abnormal to their expectation of behavior. We don't go in, throw up a tent, get a big fire going, turn on some music, start roasting marshmallows or cooking steaks, and uh, talk loudly. Yeah, they'll come in on that too uh, and check it out, check check you out because they're curious. But by throwing this sort of odd human behavior into the mix, we knew they were going to come in and go, what are these people, humans, these people doing in the middle of the forest, no lights, no music, nothing, just sitting there. And, and they had to check us out, and it, and it works every time. And it's it, sometimes it works better than we expect. Uh, we had came back, a, a, it was a third or fourth time we came back, it was just me and, and another person, me and Dave. And we put up with that one night right as it got dark, three, three and a half hours of things being thrown at us nonstop. Just things being, it was like. Were they trying to like throw it at you to hit you or was it more so to like to scare you? Were they throwing like the little pebbles or like full size like No, they baseballs? were throwing the little pebbles. Uh, they were throwing anything from acorns, hickory nuts. Little little rock pebbles to little sticks, and you'd hear them. You know when something's thrown laterally, as opposed to something being lobbed or coming off a tree. You'll hear it like come through the foliage, like if you ever hear a hickory nut or an acorn falling off an oak tree. It, you know, sort of plummets through the li- the leaf litter, and you could hear it plummeting through the leaves. This was like a pitch. This was like something I would do. You know, just pitch something sidearm as fast. And I mean, it was coming in fast and then it would land like by our feet where we were sitting. Never hit us. This went on for three hours. It land behind us. They'd land in front of us. It land to our left. It land to the right. And so we were joking about it. I was like, Dave, let's not 
let's not react anymore. Let's just let them do it. And just the first hour or two, we were like, there, just threw some, there it is again. Yep. It just landed by our foot up. Oh, it just hit behind us. Almost hit me in the back. Dave's like, they hit me. He says, I'm not going to like it. So this went on for about an hour and a half, two hours. Finally, I said, let's just ignore it. See what happens. We ignored it. We didn't react. It fucking shut down. They stopped doing it. I'm surprised they didn't just try to throw one random acorn at like the back of your head or something, trying to catch your attention. (laughs) I uh, don't pay attention to us. We'll make you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I had that happen in the tent, but we came, we came to the opinion again, it's an opinion. It's unprovable, but I keep uh, getting uh, from anecdotal accounts from other researchers that experience the same behavior they come to the very same conclusion we do, which is these are the adolescents or children doing this because, you know, they don't have a playground. They don't have toys. So this is their entertainment. So they're throwing stuff at us. And I'm sure the adults are around uh, witnessing all this behavior and they're just letting them do it. You know, they probably would intervene if, like I said, we never got hit. Uh, I, I've had rocks thrown at me in other locations by the adults but they were more a deterrent like don't come this way and you can tell the difference but the speed of the throw and and usually after the single throw the object goes whizzing past you you just see a blur of motion and you know that something like was pitched and then within seconds i'll hear a hefty knock and those are deterrents like hey i just threw a rock you're still coming here now i'm going to do the knock and that's like, that's like to let you know, like, hey, I'm right here. And at that point, if you want to keep walking, that's your choice. I usually say, okay, that's it for me. And I just turn around and I leave. Because uh, generally, most of the time this has happened, I'm by myself. And I don't know, you know, are they friendly? I'm sure they're friendly. I'm sure they're the whole spectrum of personality. Some are friendly. Some probably don't like us. And some probably would take us. So I always have to be careful because I don't know, you know, even though people say, yeah, I go to that spot in the park or forest all the time and these creatures never harmed me. Well, maybe because you never put them in a position where they would have to defend themselves or feel that they're pressured. Or interacted with the wrong one. Maybe there's one that just hasn't had a bad experience with people, possibly been shot at and the rest of the clan's fine. But that one particular one that's been shot at before may have no patience for humans. Yeah, and he might not throw a little pebble at you. He may throw a, 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 a you know, a softball-sized rock and, and knock you on your butt. So I always, uh, but every time I've heard uh, where I've in that situation where I had they threw a rock at me, and it was there was a footpath that was basically not a human footpath. I could tell this was they were using this path, and they had trampled down all the weeds and leaf litter. And I was uh, walking down this path and this thing whizzed from right to left past me and I I knew it was them. And I thought, well, I'm just going to go another 30 or 40 feet, maybe 50 feet. And uh, I I dropped pumpkins off for the deer because pumpkins are dewormers for uh, farmers use it for their livestock. And I thought every time in October or after Halloween, I take my pumpkins and I drop them off for the deer. Well, I was taking my, I had three pumpkins in a bag with me and I was taking them there to this area I do research, not thinking about they could be there because you never know when they're going to be there. I sort of established 
when they're going to be there now. I sort of narrowed it down. But at that point, I thought, well, I'll use this as an opportunity to not only drop off the pumpkins, but I'll see if they're active. And I went in there, got the thing thrown past me, and I walked another 40, maybe 50 feet down the trail to this sort of intersect that goes off to the right downhill. And just as I dropped those pumpkins, put them on the ground and took them out of the back, I hear this loud wood knock, sort of like it was like 10, 12 seconds after I got the throw. It was almost like, okay, we threw something at you and now you're still coming. So now we're going to do a wood knock like I am right here. Had I walked another 40 feet, I would have seen the creature. He was right there. There was a bunch of uh, multi-floral rose bushes and 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 wild raspberries and and a lot of brush so he was hunkered down in there and you couldn't see him but he was letting me know hey i'm right here so when people say they knock to each other i agree they do knock to each other but they also knock to each other to let them know that hey we got a human coming in and he's going to hear the knock and he'll probably realize wait a second i'm not going there and that's exactly what i did i just stopped my I stopped and I turned around and I left. I was like, hey, I don't know how this thing's going to react. Uh, if they're bold enough at nighttime to crawl into your camp and they know you're right there, how are they going to react during the daytime when you just like stumble on them? And assumably, I mean, they're, they're huge beings too. So if they came in contact with a human, like they're, they're not going to be in fear in that in that state because, I mean, they're, they're going to be the alpha in that in that situation, of course. Yeah, they're yeah they're alpha. Even if they're the small, you know, the bigger juveniles that I call them teenagers. Uh, you don't know, you know, teenagers just like our teenagers are unpredictable. Mm-hmm. They like to show off in front of their their parents or their friends, and and uh, when those elements aren't around, the teenager may act totally cordial to you. And and I've run or in that with teenagers. I was a teenager once. I remember. If you're by yourself and you run into adults, you're like, yes, sir, and you're nice to people. But then your friends are around. You may treat people totally differently just to impress your friends. I think uh, Bigfoot juveniles are like that. Uh, I've heard where they're they're just curious. And I think the ones that I've experienced crawling into camp so far are what I call the the big juveniles. And they're just... uh, they they want to see what's going on. And I think the adults, they're there and they're probably sitting back at a distance watching all this unfold. And they've already they they went through this when they were younger and they know about us. They know what we do. They know that we come in and we build these campfires and stink up the environment, turn our music up and cook steaks and leave our garbage behind. So I think to the to the alphas and the the bigger adults, they're probably familiar enough with us that they don't have to learn those lessons. But I, I came to the conclusion that uh, uh, I now, as I've gotten older, I don't do in-depth hikes or excursions by myself anymore. I have to take a second person with me uh, just from the standpoint of mechanical injury or hurting myself where I have to self-rescue. When I was younger, I, it didn't bother me too much. Uh, I thought, you know, when you're younger, you sort of feel you're somewhat invincible and nothing bad is going to happen to you. And as I got older, I realized, boy, how how fortunate I've been that uh, I was able to uh, have all these things happen to me 
And by uh, maybe it wasn't coincidence, but I never got hurt or damaged when they were around. And they weren't always concealing and they were not afraid to let me know they were there. I mean, just makes you wonder if you're almost like pre- one step away from being a missing 411 if you didn't interact certain ways at certain times or, you know, make noise at certain times to kind of push them back away from you. Yeah, I always make noise uh, even when I was by myself. I was always, uh, if I didn't have my dog with me, I I bring a video camera. So, of course, I was talking on the video camera narrating. So they're probably thinking, who is he talking to? You know, who's this other person they can't see? So I think that sort of helped me a lot there because they're probably looking behind trees, looking for who's this other person I'm talking to. So I think that's helped me tremendously. Uh, and I've been able to, uh, in one incident, uh, uh, camping with four other people. Uh, well, there was uh, four tents and I believe uh, the the fifth guy, he left a night early, and I think it was the night that he left that we had uh, an interaction, and that was in Wisconsin. But we're all, uh, we all are in our tents. There's four of us, counting me, and we're all in our tents at night. We decided to retire for the night, and uh, I came to the conclusion a juvenile walked into camp that night in total darkness, and he, he basically, uh, I heard the footsteps come up behind my tent, and uh, what I believe was a hand pushed through the fabric of my tent and rolled me over on my side, or rolled me over on my stomach. I was laying on my right side. And it, uh, what probably triggered that to happen, and because I, I thought back later, I said, why, why me? Why did this happen to me? Because there were three other tents beside mine. I had the smallest tent. I had a little one-man alpine tent. So when you lay in this tent on your back, your right arm touches the front part of the tent, your left arm touches the back of the tent, and your head and feet damn near touch either end. So it was just designed for somebody that's no taller basically than six foot. So I'm laying, I was on my, what happened is, is uh, it's like 3, 3.30 in the morning, and uh because of these situations, I got into a habit of taking either a Gatorade bottle or a mason jar with me in the tent, so in case I had that urge. So uh, the urge came. I had a, I had a pee, so I, I uncapped the Gatorade bottle uh, after I turned the tent light on. I first turned the tent light on and uncapped the Gatorade bottle, relieved myself, capped the bottle, and then turned the tent light off. This couldn't have taken more than not even a minute, 45 seconds. I laid back down on my right shoulder and lay, laid on my right, my right side with my back to the rear tent wall. Probably within five seconds of laying down on my right side, I hear thump, 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 just like, like somebody casually walking up to the back of my tent in total darkness. And the next thing I know, I feel this thing in my back. I feel like what it what felt like a hand and it pushed through the tent and pushed me hard enough where it rolled me over onto my stomach. So now I'm laying on my stomach in total darkness. My mouth is hanging open wanting to like, Hey guys, I got, you know, (laughs) I wanted to like yell out. Then I thought, no, I'm not going to yell out because I don't know how this thing's going to react. So I laid there on my stomach 
and for a few seconds, and then I just hear it walk away. I just hear it just thump, 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 and it just trails off into the distance, and it goes. What gave me the conclusion, I came to the conclusion it wasn't a black bear, because first of all, the bipedal footsteps are pretty obvious. I thought it was one of the guys in camp, because I questioned them the next morning, and they said, no, it was it was overcast. You couldn't see at all. We would have been walking around with flashlights. And I had asked him, I said, yeah, you, how could you see in total darkness? And they said, we, we never left our tents. So that was one reason I thought it was a, a, a juvenile or a smaller Bigfoot. I don't think it was a big one. And then I had several, three or four bags of uh, supplies. I had like bread, coffee, sugar, uh, creamer. Uh, I think I had some... Uh, some hamburger or bratwurst in packages in those bags. And I left them outside my tent, right at that rear wall. This thing reached over the bags to push me. So I, at that point I thought that would not, a bear would have, would have taken the food. Yeah. It would have thrashed the, the tent would have rummaged food. around. Yeah. Yeah. But the food was outside the tent. I wasn't oh. like, I thought if I, I have a visiting black bear, I don't want it tearing through my tent to get to the food. So I left the food sort of the three or four bags lined up behind the tent. And the only thing that was, it was the bread. And maybe I had a package of bratwurst or hot dogs, uh, like a, like a four or eight pack. And they were in the bag. And I thought, uh, oh yeah, that's, they're just going to go for the food, not me. Well, this thing that was interested in me. So the next morning we're discussing it. And one of the guys goes, well, then that makes sense because about the time around that time that you had your experience, something came up to my tent, the wall of my tent and was like raking its fingernails on the outside wall of the tent, you know, on the fabric. And I go, uh, he goes, yeah, he says, uh, I, I didn't know what to think of that. I, I said, were you going to unzip the tent? Look out. He goes, no, <laughs> he was afraid. Sounds like a juvenile so that, trying to have some the, late night entertainment or something, possibly trying to see what you guys will do or trying to interact with you guys. And you guys weren't giving anything back to him. So he was like, ah, this is boring. And he just walked away. <laughs> yeah. Well, we came to the conclusion after we compared stories that there potentially was more than one juvenile in camp that night. We had four tents. They probably all just went around and checked out all our tents, went to all our food items. I mean, we all had backpacks. Some of us had stuff laying, you know, just around the camp outside the tent, not just me. There was other guys there that had their stuff, their water coolers and some of their, uh, your refuse, your debris from your food that you had cooked earlier in that day. You, sh you, you put those scraps in a bag and then you set that bag outside your tent, you know, and not thinking that uh, it would be a major attractant. Well, they're, they were probably checking all this out and uh, we came to the conclusion that, they that they had gone to all our tents i was just fortunate they probably thought there's a little kid staying in my tent because it was such a small tent they're probably like oh we're gonna mess with the kid bigfoot have an attraction to kids so you know that was my theory again it's only speculative i can't prove it but i thought yeah i had the smallest everybody else had three man and in and, and four man tents i had this little one man tent that uh has been all over the world with me, you know, and it's a four season tent and served me well. So I thought, yeah, I'll just sleep in this little, cause I can put it up while everybody else is putting up their big tents. I'm like, I'm done, <laughs> you know, just get in my tent, you know, go to sleep. But, uh, 
Yeah, it was. Uh, we we never knew why why that happened, why I got rolled over, and it, I did in my mind for the longest time before that event. I, I wanted to uh, have a like a face to face encounter with one. Maybe not hand not a handshake, but like you know, just stand there five ten feet away and just sort of look at each other and then just leave. You know, that's not like the ideal situation i didn't think i was going to get that i thought but i can think about it so that was in my mind and i thought you know i don't believe in the psychic sasquatch believe me but i I thought about it so maybe because i i was entertaining of the idea of meeting sasquatch and i've carried that thought in my mind for years maybe this one read my mind and thought yeah we're gonna we'll give him his you know we'll give him an answer we'll 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 treat him so I, mean, I always thought about that, but I, it could even be some type of like sense too. Cause uh, you know, like animals, of course they have way more senses than we do because we've kind of deterred ourselves away from them being as the farther we get into technology, the less and less we have as far as like our natural instincts and senses go. So, I mean, even just one, if he thought you were a kid, maybe he thought he could get away with a little bit more and you wouldn't fire off at him because maybe they kind of know that kids aren't going to be the ones that are carrying guns or um, yeah, looking at it from like the other side of the spectrum too. Maybe it's you know, uh, or, your uh, intention that they knew that like they have like a sense that they're picking up that you weren't giving off any type of like alpha energy, like you were going to like hurt them. Maybe it was more you're kind of giving off this uh, this sense to them that they could pick it up that you weren't going to be anything that was going to be coming at them aggressively. So maybe they kind of like mistake do you maybe as like a kid off of that, or two they just knew that you weren't something that was going to hurt them. You know, kind of like dogs kind of have that. They can kind of pick out who people are, yeah. like who's yeah. going to help them versus who's going to hurt them. They kind of, they have that instinct. It's kind of hard to explain. Yeah. I think they're, you know, I think there's a good possibility that it could be either or, or both a combination of those that you just mentioned, because, uh, you know, when you bring up dogs and other animals, it's funny how you're going to have uh, five people, uh, in an area around a dog and that one nervous person is the only one that will that dog will stay away from or actually trigger that dog to bear its teeth and then the other four people the dog will react normally to them like hey you're you're cool i'm cool with you and i've had that happen i've seen it happen with my dog and my son bring uh two of his friends over and uh he uh my son is my dog runs up and he puts his paws on the top fence. Uh, he was a big, he was a male, uh, German shepherd. And, uh, my son's one friend was used to him and had petted him before and interacted with him. And my son, you know, was good with him because he, he helped raise him. And the third, the third guy, he uh, had a fear of dogs and he openly admitted it. So as he's, uh, he's asking my son, can I pet, can I pet Max? And my son sort of chuckled to himself. And I know what my son was doing. He, he was, he knew he should have said no, but instead he goes, yeah, you can pet him. You know, like, like kids do, young guys do knowing that it may not turn out well. So his friend reaches over and he's shaking his hand shaking and he reaches over. He doesn't even get close to my dog's head. And my dog already had his teeth bared and he was growling. Like, don't you touch me. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't you touch me. And I've seen other dogs. People tell me that dog's unapproachable. No, everybody's afraid of him. And I, uh, this guy, he was a friend of mine and I walked right up to his dog 
and I, I opened the gate and I walked in. He goes up and I walked up to this dog. His dog jumped up, put his paws on my shoulder. I petted him. He licked my face. He goes, you're the only one that's ever been able to do that. I go, why? This, my dog has a reputation as being a badass. And he says, everybody in the neighborhood is afraid of him. I says, well, see, that's just it. I don't live in your neighborhood. And I had no idea he was like that. So that's that pre, sort of a precondition people have. They set themselves up for it. And, and like that night we were in camp, uh, I was no more fearful, I don't think, than any of the other guys. I might have been less of a risk. They might have viewed me as less of a of an aggressive person compared to the rest of the guys. Uh, I know two, possibly three of the guys that were there with me all had handguns. I was the only one without a handgun. That would mean you know, Mitch a had huge one. one, too, as far as like intent and stuff goes, yeah. too. Yeah, because that's your intention. Because you, you sort of, you physically, through macro and micro expressions, display sort of that status of having a gun. Uh, if you they have heightened have to senses, too, I you, almost wonder if they could even, like, potentially spell like smell like the metals and oils coming off of the gun itself so they could know who's carrying a gun just off of, like, the smell of it. It's very potential. I think uh, it's that. And uh, they I think they, they read our our body language. So one of the guys was he, he was a retired lieutenant colonel out of the military. He was in special forces. We still have contact with him today. And uh, he's a very interesting gentleman. But he, I know he had, a, he had a gun. And I know Dave had a gun. And Ricky had a gun. And I was the only one I had a knife. I think I had a pocket knife or something. But uh, I was like the least. So I guess I would be the least threatening one. But see, it also is displayed in your behavior. I know if I have a gun on me. My disposition, as much as I think it doesn't change, my intention and my disposition does change to some degree. And I'm sure they have psychiatry or studies that would back that up. There is a yeah, you walk with your, your chest behavior. puffed out, like you're like a little, you're less yeah, on the defense shoulders, side. And you're a little bit more broad and confident with the way you're walking. Yeah, your shoulders aren't sloped down. You're not relaxed. You're more. You're more overconfident, and, and, and I, I think that that's that alpha status. So I think uh, maybe that might have set me apart. Could have been the small tent. Could have been a combination of all those things, plus the, the intention in my mind. I'd like to, you know, I think you you uh, were, were mostly, what, 90% plus water, and we're electrical current. Human beings, our bodies, we're, we're electrical energy. So... Whatever your intentions are, I think that electrical energy, you're putting it off in waves, what I call swinging waves. And I think it probably picks up these swinging waves. And like that guy, his swinging waves are, yeah, he's sort of iffy. He's paranoid, maybe a little fearful. This guy over here, his shoulders are down. He's relaxed. He doesn't seem to have anything bother him. It's uh, what I always used to piss me off when I was younger, when people would fear me, I would be mad at them because they feared me. And I'm like, me? What are you fear, afraid of me for? Little old me, I, I'm i a nice guy. I would get, like, angry, like, you're fearing me because somebody told you about, you know, my re- suppo- alleged reputation, like I was a badass. And I was like, I would be, like, mad at people. And I was like, maybe Bigfoot feels that. Like, everybody's afraid of them. And they're like, you know, 
you need to check yourself, you know, if you're going to come into my forest and leave all those feelings behind. I always wondered about that. Again, it's again, it's a lot of its opinion, uh, but some of it is, like I said, it's uh, I don't believe in coincidence either. So things happen. And I have to say they do study us and they know by our behaviors and how we carry ourselves. And even the fact of how we talk, I think when people talk, your, your language exhibits your sense of nervousness or aggressiveness or confidence. And that, and that could separate who they would want to. They may say, well, we'll deal with that person. But any of these other people, we're not going to have anything to do with. So there's always that sense of it. But then you got to factor in, are they sick, hungry? Like you said, maybe one or two of them were shot at, had bad experiences. All these other things. Mother just gave birth to a baby. They're ultra protective all these other things that enter into it. So uh, it's, to me, it's like just going into a new neighborhood or into somebody into a, uh, somebody's house with a family you never met and you get invited into your house. You don't know the dynamic. So you sort of try to mind your P's and Q's and try to be respectful. And uh, hopefully you won't, you know, piss anybody off and have you thrown out of the house. <laughs> you know, it's very true. So, kind of like how you're explaining it too, because most people kind of look at them in the aspect of them being more like animalistic, but yet they still entertain the whole like intelligence idea, but you don't necessarily know how intelligent they could be. They could be just as intelligent as us, but they're like wood based. Like they could be able to pick up on every single cue conversation piece that any normal human could maybe even more than that. I mean, and we're, we would never be fully aware until we're actually able to interact with them. For all we know, they can even speak English because there's even signs I've heard people mention about them repeating back English to them. They could be just straight mirroring what somebody's saying like a parrot, or it could be a lot more intelligent than that. And they're actually trying to speak whatever language you're speaking. Because I mean, even just looking at the animal kingdom in general, uh, there's a lot of abilities that animals have that are specific to one animal. And we don't know that it's a possibility to exist until we discover fully that one animal. So who knows what type of uh, like natural skills Sasquatch could have that we don't think are possible because we haven't actually physically seen an animal that's that has those yet. Yeah, I uh, I think that's that definitely has a lot of weight and it has a lot of uh, it bears a lot of fruit because uh, there is you know uh, people like. Uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, oh God, I can't think of his name now, but he's a crypto linguist and he's been studying Bigfoot language for years. The one that was uh, doing Scott Rod Nelson's Moorhead's breakdown name. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, he went with Ron Moorhead, I believe once or twice up to the top of the mountain in the Sierra site and actually did research, but he's come out with a couple, a uh, woman has just released a couple of videos she did about, uh, with, uh, she featured Scott Nelson, uh, in Sasquatch language, I think part one and two, and uh, I've recorded some language too, and, uh, and and but I don't believe it's of the caliber of the Sierra sounds that I want to send to him. Uh, I think I have yet to capture what I call stuff that's along that 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 level of quality of language. What I've 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 have recorded is in a distance with a parabolic them saying words that I can't, can't understand. So I came to the conclusion on my own that they are indeed a people. I think I've been able to establish that to myself, convince myself of that. I don't care what anybody else says. I've been able to convince myself of that, that uh, they use words 
that are only known among their own people, their only their own language, can they being around humans as they intimately are probably consistently in all the national and state parks and all the private use land areas that are forested there where they're constantly hearing people talk because you know we're what is it 333 332 million people live in the united states now so it's just sort of hard not to imagine that bigfoot would not hear a language not just english but all the other languages spoken and not being able to at least by our 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 body language determine oh that's a high that's a, a greeting that's a goodbye. That's a greeting they make when they leave. That's a greeting when they when they meet. This is the names of their children. This is the words they use when they call each other. They apparently have names for each other. I think they would learn that. They know what water, you know, the word we use for the obvious stuff like water, rain, tree. They probably know those words in English and other languages. Now, as far as sitting down and having a conversation with them, that may be quite different. But yet, I feel... Scott Nelson has been able to filter through all the language, the syntax, and what he calls the phenomes, and determine that there are turnarounds in the language. I mean, you see it among humans when you're talking to your significant other. When I talk to my wife before she finishes her sentence, I already start answering her, answering her with my sentence. Well, this is what's going on between Bigfoot. They they sort of talk over each other. There's you know, there's even what uh, Scott has determined is questions. Like when you ask a question, you cannot, if you don't even know Russian or French, because you're an English speaker like we are, you can always tell in a per, another person's language when they ask a question because of how how it ends. And uh, leave it with that open-ended high oh. syllable. Yes, it's an open-ended high, high symbol. It's a question, and it has, it has emotional syntax to it. So you understand, uh, and you also like what I just said there. You understand the emphasis you put on words. So I think uh, that has, you know, I don't think it's a proto language. I think it's a it's a, le- a language, and it's uh, it's quickly spoken. It, I believe uh, what I heard on my parabolic was definitely quick. And Scott Nelson has determined that they speak at a time uh, three to five times faster than we do. And uh, so that in itself would make you think, well, that's just, it's all guttural. Just like if you went to the primate house and you listen to chimpanzees and, and gorillas, you know, you would think, well, that's what they sound like, but no, they don't. And in the Sierra sounds, there is one segment of the Sierra sounds where they slowed their language down. So, they could understand them. So the, so, uh, so he could, the, you know, the humans could understand them talking, which is something they did, which I found pretty remarkable. Yeah. That yes, just shows uh, a level of intelligence. Them, yes. They know that we speak enunciated, abbreviated, and we sometimes have gap between our words. If you hear them talk, it's just like, uh, uh, and when I heard them on my parabolic, I heard what I heard was they talk on the exhale and the inhale. When they were talking, it was like blah 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 blah. blah. It was like they were going. Uh, uh, and then Scott Nelson sort of described that he calls it talking on the pant, P A N T. They talk on the pant, meaning that 
there is no wasted there is no wasted air. You know, we have to talk and then we have to inhale and then we have to say our next sentence or paragraph. They talk just on the pant. So I, and I think they have a hyoid bone, bone like we do, that uh, what I call, it's a U-shaped bone that only humans, homo sapiens or homo uh, people, uh, I should say humans that are in the homo genus that can speak have a hyoid bone and they've determined that Bigfoot must have a hyoid bone, that structure they need for, for language. So, uh, and even Melba Ketchum, uh, the discussions I've had with her, she's come to the conclusion that they're a people, whether you want to call them a forest people, a wild people, whatever. She says they're a people that have, uh, if you have a language, in order to have language, what's the main thing you need? Uh, what do you lose when you lose your language? I'll put it this way. Think of the Native Americans. When you lose your language, what do you lose? Losing your culture. And I was actually even going to say yes. and relate them back to the Native Americans, too, saying that there's even yes. legend of them being a lost tribe and other legends, of course, of them being able to speak the native languages. And a yes. lot of yes. people have even theorized that some of the native languages may have been based off of Sasquatch language. I think there was a mixing, just like there is with uh, all the Latin languages, the Italians, the French, Spanish uh, even in English, we have Latin, Spanish, and French words in our own language. So I think there's an intermixing. So there's a common use of certain words that they probably absorbed from the Native Americans that even maybe the Native Americans absorbed and used some of their words mm -hmm. going back thousands of years. So if you, I guess if you look at it that way, uh, if you lose your, you know, if you lose your language, you lose your culture. Well, I maintain they still have as, as primitive as you may feel the culture is. And I don't like to use the word primitive because that sort of gives you the connotation like it's beneath you. And I think they're just as advanced as us, but advanced naturally instead of technologically. It's kind of a good way to yes. describe it. And you can say that about any of the tribes in New Guinea and any of the, uh, any of the uh, Amazonian tribes. They're advanced. They know all the medicinal and herbal plants and the pharmacopoeia in the jungle, way more than probably most of our medical scientists do. And yet uh, they have their own language. But the minute colonization starts and they're deprived of their language, they lose their culture. They lose their traditions. And I think there, uh, there might be a slight degree of that, even to a major degree of that going on with Bigfoot, where there is a loss of culture where you have extant clans or families that have been sort of isolated from the major populations and groups that have then lost some of their culture and their language may be suffering too as a result of that. So, you know, that, that was my concern. Uh, do they need protections? No, because I think whenever at this level of our evolution as homo sapien sapien, our, our ability to protect species may be successful to a lesser degree in some of the in the animal kingdom or you know the bald eagle or things of that nature may have some successes but i think when we get involved in protections of something like a bigfoot species a bigfoot genus i think i think it would end badly for bigfoot i think they 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 don't need our protection they need to be left alone and maybe our trying to control and establish 
you know, communities everywhere on the planet and just basically destroy the lungs of the earth, which is the forest, that's what's going to affect Bigfoot, not our establishing protections. Because if we try to establish protections and put aside areas where they can be, you might as well just call it what it is. It's going to be a reservation. That's what I was about to say. You're doing the same thing to them as you would be the Native Americans, kind of treating them the same way, that they're the natives to the land, but you're going to section them off and say, all right, you live here specifically. Yes, and you can't leave this area, and you can't go rogue. And, you know, you talk to even to this day to Bureau of Indian Affairs, and they'll tell you, oh, no, we protected the Native Americans. We put them on these reservations for their own good. We're taking care of them. Well, I visited many reservations. I have Native American friends. And it's like any ghetto you've ever gone to. It's just like it's a ghetto. You know, they're just it's a place you would not want to grow up or live. And it's not it's not a good place to live. Intentionally uh, and, not and, as good as schooling and purposely they push a bunch of alcohol into those areas too. So it's it's an intentional ploy too that they think that they're helping the people, but realistically they're kind of just ruining the culture and making them mentally worse because they're just pulling them more and more away from like who they used to be. Oh yeah. It's an end game. It started back uh, pre-civil war with the uh, Indian removal act in 1836. And I think uh, it's still going to this day. And uh, a lot of people don't know this. A lot of, a lot of Americans, uh, indigenous non-native and native don't know this, but there are POW camp designations for all the reservations in this country. Whether you go to Rosebud or, uh, you know, all, all the various reservations. I used to live in New Mexico. They all have POW camp designations, prisoner of war designations to this day. So when you say reservation, let, let's be correct about the terminology. Reservation is a, is a, is a label reserved from the military. It's not... You know, so they have, so that's not when people say, oh, I, yeah, I'm from the res, you're on a military reservation and you have some minimal amount of sovereignty. But in reality, you're, you're every, everything is controlled by a couple government agencies. Uh, and, and the main one is the BIA, Bureau of Indian Affairs. So I, you know, uh, and so that, that makes sense that they're, they're sort of, cordoned off into these areas of land and wilderness areas that nobody wants there's no mineral resource significance until it does and then they move in and they get the uranium oil coal whatever but uh, while they're in those areas those wilderness areas people always ask well how come you know the rest you know the native americans the res uh, has more interactions with bigfoot than uh than the average people that live in rural areas or even live in urban areas. And I, and I always maintain, I says, well, I says they've had an established connection with them long before colonization. So if that's the case, then Bigfoot, because of culture, you have history. Mm-hmm. History is part of your culture. So it makes sense that they would have that connection. Uh, you know, and, and so I always wondered about that because uh, I always thought, well, there's must be a connection. And it's because they're living in areas that are the godforsaken areas are where their their settlements and the reservations are, and that's where you find Bigfoot because they're pushed out of the areas that just like the Indians are, they're pushed into areas that nobody wants to go see, like the Badlands, but that they're living in the Badlands. 
You know, I was going to say too. I was wondering if, because obviously they, can, even if they know that these things exist, they can't like acknowledge them on paper. So maybe they have tried to make reserves and they just call them national parks and they allow people to go in them and they kind of keep track of things. And that's where like the missing four one ones and different things may come from is because it may not just be specifically Sasquatch. There could be Dogman and other things involved, but maybe they have sectioned it off. And they just, again, they can't put it on paper as what it is. So they just have to call it like a national park. And realistically, what they know is oh, that yeah. there's something special on this land and we can't mess with this land, but we can't be too obvious about it. So we still have to let people in. And that's kind of where they try to like push hikers towards certain areas. And maybe it's like a deterrent to because they know that what's actually in the middle of that national forest. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think that happens. has been happening for quite some time. They uh I, I've gone into state parks, national parks, where that area was open, and the next thing you go in and it's gated with signs that uh, there's a certain species of insect or cricket or frog, tree frog, that now is under protection. That They have to come up with a reason to prevent you from going in that area. They're not going to tell you that, no, we had some campers that might have been killed or hurt or injured or got the scare of their life, and so now we got to, you know, gate it and keep it closed and then claim that there is uh, uh, an endangered species of something that we don't want you to go. They have to have a reason for it. So you pick any of a number of things. You know, uh, we have an area not far from where I live where uh, there is an endangered species of cave bat. And this area is riddled with caves that I know is part of uh, an active site for Bigfoot, uh, maybe not a habituation area, but definitely an area where they could seek cover and concealment. And yet you can't go in there because of this one certain species of short-nosed bat. You may carry a fungus in there on your shoes that may decimate the population. And I thought to myself, when has the government, I don't care if it's the DNR or the U.S. Forest Service or the Bureau of the Interior that runs the whole game, uh, worried about protecting us as citizens. They'll tell you they're there to protect you as a tourist going into the national parks. But in reality, they're not, you know, if you want to ask anybody about the government protecting them from protecting them and protecting them from hurting themselves or killing, getting killed, ask the Native Americans (laughs) how well the government protects them. So I, I rely on my own survival instincts to protect me. I I don't ask for the government to intrude into my space to protect me when I'm in a national park and tell me, hey, you need to to tell me Bigfoot or Dogman are in these areas. I need your protection, Uncle Sam. Because in reality, they don't give a shit. You know, you don't have to be political to know this. You know. I mean, they could even intentionally kind of have people go towards certain areas knowing that they need a food source and that'll kind of keep them at bay for a little while. But I mean, I've even heard from a few uh, people who work at parks that'll say things along the lines of they'll have weird encounters that'll happen in the woods and they're told to section off certain areas and basically tell people that come by that it's a it was a bear attack. So that if anybody sees anything big and strange, they're instantly going to assume it's a bear because they already have that concept in their head because the ranger was telling them, oh, there's there's been bear sighted in this area. So like they'll purposely yeah. call them after animals that are similar just so that if people do see them, they're not second guessing what they're seeing. Yeah, they'll say, oh, yeah, that's just uh, an upright walking bear, you know, and that's uh, that's all it is because they don't want to give it a second look. Good old you know? Patty walking so around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, they're fear mongering. They're like, yeah, don't go in that area, or you know, or we have homeless people living there, and you know, they may break into your vehicle or break into your camp and steal your, you know, your food and maybe your beer, or whatever. So they always have, uh, they have to use a form of fear mongering because they'll never be truthful. The you know, the truth is the last thing that ever comes out. That's that's the result of exposure, and they won't share that with you because if they share that with you. God forbid, you know, uh, the trauma induced and the people can't handle it. I'm sure there is a, fe- uh, a segment of society that may react that way, but we're not talking about an invasion of UFOs. We're just saying, hey, you can't go into that section of the park because there might be some Bigfoot that just want to be left alone. And so we're gating it off and we can't put up a sign that says stay out, Bigfoot occupied. They put a sign up, stay out, endangered tree for a frog. So people feel... <laughs> They can, you know, or bears, bears are breeding, stay out. So it brings the moral dilemma into it too, because you think you're going to mess up nature. So, you know, they make it so it's not just like, oh, I might get danger too. It's also like the personal aspect of it. Like, I don't want to be the guy that contaminated this whole area of the forest. (laughs) Yeah. And and it is a, they, uh, the government is, uh, not there to protect you. They're not there In, in reality. They treat all of us like we're very stupid little children. Uh, you don't have to be pulled over by a, a policeman because you're speeding the, f- the sense that uh, you're a 60 or 70 year old man and you have a 20 year old policeman t- talking to you like you're his grandchild. Uh, that's that. That's our government. They they've been they've instilled this sense of I guess you'd call it uh, that we are collectively uh, stupid people in this country. And, and, and that's not the case at all. I treat everybody on the individual basis of who they are. And, and that's how I, you know, you have to come across with people from a standpoint of respect. Uh, that's why I, uh, I don't understand uh, in this country, uh, we're so far behind. I mean, when Russians in Russia, they have just basically it's, it's, a op- it, it's open, accessible, openly available information about Bigfoot. They don't suppress it like they do in this country. Uh, even in other countries, it's just, it's, it's available information. They're not trying to suppress us. We're still like operating from the standpoint of the 1950s and sixties in this country. We can't, uh, I was gonna say even the UFO can't. thing, other countries are a lot more open about it and they ask people to report stuff. And it wasn't until really recently that the U S started actually saying like, Oh, if you guys see anything weird, please report it where, you know, the UK like five years ago was saying, we keep seeing UFOs flying near planes. If you guys see anything like this, record it and send it to us. Like they're being open about what they were saying. Yeah. Same in Russia, same in France, the UK. I believe, uh, I believe that's the case. It used to be the case in, uh, either New Zealand or Australia, but they would tell the public, yeah, come and report it, share the information. They put it in the papers. They don't like, you know, it wasn't like Roswell where they put it in the papers one day and the next day it's uh, it's mantle holding the, the shreds of a hot air balloon saying, well, yeah, it wasn't really a UFO. It was a hot air balloon or a weather balloon. Uh, and, uh, yeah, in Russia, it's like freely available. They're like, they, they don't ridicule you. You're not made fun of if you come out and say you saw a UFO. Uh, in this country, yeah, they started sort of doing the disclosure of the AIPs, uh, AUPs, aerial phenomena, uh, more recently with probably from 2004 uh, to maybe more recently. They're sort of coming out a little more about it. But again, it's the disclosure based on 
what they're willing to talk about. It's sort of what I call controlled exposure, mm-hmm. a little drip at a time here. A little, what is what I call acceptable? Uh, if we can get you looking at this UAP in the sights of an F-22 capture on thermal, then you're not looking at maybe a fleet of UFOs that maybe landed somewhere in the United States that they don't want you to know about. So, again, there, there, there's always that distraction. We'll have you looking over here, and everybody in the nation will say, oh, my God, that's incredible. But they don't, what you don't realize is you're looking at the little 1% when the 99% is happening over here mm-hmm. that they don't want you to be aware of. And that's why, and that's how the intelligence agencies work in this country. Uh, they, they try to uh, handle it as a controlled exposure so there is no traumatizing of the American public because we're so stupid that we can't handle, we couldn't handle the truth. I mean, even you know, like the whole slapped. recent UFO thing, I think that was an intentional ploy to make it so that theoretically in the future, if they were going to be shooting down UFOs or people started seeing weird things, I think they were intentionally trying to get people to associate the word UFO and UFOs in general with being uh, drones, uh, different types of like surveillance balloons, so that as things progress in the future, if people start seeing weird things in the sky, they're going to start associating it with that rather than actually being a UFO. And then if they start taking the chance of actually trying to shoot things down over big public areas, people are going to be rooting and think it's patriotic, like they're taking down some kind of surveillance drone. But really, they're actually trying to take out UFOs with new technology that they may not have been able to like use openly in front of the public before. <laughs> Yeah, I agree with that. I think they were definitely doing that. Even the fact that they changed the terminology and they now call it uh, UAP as opposed to a UFO. Uh, to me, that's that's significant because the UFO cults and the UFO conventions, the UFO enthusiasts, uh, the UFO industry was all based on unidentified flying objects. Well, now they want to term, uh, initially they said, well, we're going to call it aerial uh uh, UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomena. Now they change that to mean now anomalous aerial phenomena. So it's now it's no longer, uh, you know, they even change the meaning of the letters. So they're thinking that, well, anybody that says UFO, those are people that are conspiracy theorists, which were again created after the Warren Commission by the CIA. And those people are, you know, they're tin hat wearer, tin foil wearers. So they're the UFO crowds. Now we're going to call it UAP. So it has some sort of legitimacy as though we're talking about something totally separate when in fact we're not. I almost wonder too if they do that so they can kind of get an idea of which angle you're coming at it from too. If you're coming at it from the angle that they want you to or if you're coming at it from the conspiracy angle. So right off the bat, depending on which type of uh, terminology you use, they know what type of information you're going to be digging into and where you're pulling from. Oh, that's totally a PSYOP. That's that's a psyop. That's that's uh, classic CIA operational procedures and all the other intelligence agencies combined. They uh, they change the terminology that way they can they can say well that's separate from this. You know that guy believes in UFOs back from the sixties and seventies. He was a nutcase. Now we're calling him UAPs because we created a commission out of the Pentagon to investigate UAPs. We won't even call him unidentified aerial phenomena we're calling them anomalous aerial phenomena or whatever something to that i when i heard that i was like well you know unidentified anonymous phenomena that even makes it more i guess you'd say uh vague 
it muddies the waters even more because that could be anything, you know, whether it be Chinese, you know, spy balloons to drones created by the U.S. government to some guy in his backyard that created some kind of uh, levitating anti-graph technology. Nobody knows about it. It could be anything. So that way you're constantly in a state of confusion and you can never dial down to get any answers. And they don't want you to have answers because by God, if you find out and you find out the truth, you may be a security threat. You know, you can't have that. But they had to be somewhat open about it, though, because now that they've actually openly talked about it, now they probably have a lot more people sending in their documentation to them. So I I almost wonder, too, if it was an intentional ploy so that they could collect more information without having to give any more information out. Well, it is. It's It's a feedback loop. What you just described is a feedback loop. What you're doing is you're having people in the general public, like you and I, uh, the population in the United States or even across the world, saying, well, we just saw this, we just saw that. So they report it to their local agency. It goes up the chain to eventually the CIA or the Pentagon, and they go, okay, that's great. We just got to report that this thing was in this part of the community, in this town, in this state, in this area. So, yes, yes, that's one of ours, or that's one of theirs, or this is something that we don't want anybody to know about. So that feedback loop sort of reminds me of the BFRO, the Bigfoot Research Organization. Mm-hmm. They were doing that and probably are still doing that. They want you to take all your Bigfoot reports to a clearinghouse run by Matt Moneymaker and tell every tell them, their organization, this is where we had the sighting, what it was, what was the experience was involved. And as long as it fits within their guidelines of a valid sighting, they'll put it in their UF, their Bigfoot reporting index. But if there's anything that's paranormal, unusual, Bigfoot's talking to each other, having language, things that they can't comprehend, that information doesn't show up on, on the in the archive, in the index. It, uh, it's like it's not reputable. So Even I on the other that, side, that, too, it makes it so that never... they can take in information, check it out themselves before they can actually put it out where anybody else knows about it. Because I know that there's a lot of organizations that collect yeah. a lot of research and data, and the intention is like, oh, we're going to put all this information out and collect it. But realistically, they don't put the information out until six months later after they've already went to that location and collected it. And the location at that point is now stagnant and has nothing left to research. And they filter there. it too. They filter it. They say, well, the guidelines, and that's why I, I, I've talked to people that were members of the BFRO and they said they had valid sightings or talked to eyewitnesses that had valid sightings and had the evidence and everything. But because it became, it, it, it was a little more paranormal in some of the uh, experiences, the encounters, or it didn't fit within the guidelines of the BFRO, just like the MUFON, has strict guidelines of what determines whether this is a Bigfoot or a UFO. And if it falls outside those guidelines, that's just like the footage that falls on the editing room floor, never gets published. It's just, it never goes on the index. It never comes out. And they just, they, 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 they control. And, and I always wondered about that because some of the, there was a, uh, years ago, there was a release of information about uh, Moneymaker and that organization, the BFRO, basically being financed by uh, a man who uh, was uh, apparently an asset or was with the CIA. So if they got the CIA funding your, funding your community, your, your research organization, 
you have to question what's the trade-off is this pay to play are you giving are they giving him money and saying hey only release the stuff that shows bigfoot is animalistic they're not a people they're more of a like a, just a North American primate, just like a gorilla from Africa. And this is the stuff we want you to produce, publish, put out on your website. But anything else that may give you the impression that these might be a people and they can do things, they have culture and language. Yeah, don't put that stuff out there. Well, and we'll continue to fund you that there's a trade off. And, and I, I talked, I had another podcast I was on where we discussed that. And uh, the information was there. I forget the name of the gentleman, but he was uh, allegedly with the CIA. They're always allegedly with the CIA, but he had supposedly retired and or was funding, you know, anybody who takes money from the intelligence agencies. It's just not like, hey, this is a friendly loan. Do what you want with it. No, there is there's a pay to play. You, you're getting that money for a reason. And they're going to come at some point and say, hey, I will come to you like. Don Corleone said, well, we'll come to you someday and ask for a favor. That's what I was going to say. It sounds like a mob. (laughs) Yes. And the CIA, that's all the intelligence agencies are. They're very, they're regulated like the mob. They regulate themselves like a mob. And uh, it's sort of funny how people say the word conspiracy theory. They don't know that 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 term was to basically repudiate all the people that disagreed with the Warren Commission who decided uh, it was a one person shooter meaning Lee Harvey Oswald, during the, uh, who basically assassinated John F. Kennedy. Uh, and people that came out repudiated that, says, no, no, there were several people. It was conspiracy. And the mob and the CIA and the Cubans were all involved in this. Uh, those people, the CIA created a term for that. They called them conspiracy theorists. And those were conspiracy theories to basically poo-poo them, make fun of them. Now, to this day, People are still being ridiculed for all sorts of things by being basically labeled conspiracy theorists, especially on the uh, news recently, and especially after like the post uh, COVID, all that kind of stuff too. Like you hear constant slandering about like objective thinkers, vaccine deniers, conspiracy theorists. Like that terminology yes. is coming back in the news, and it's being used in the same way that it used to back in the day. After kind of having a stagnant point where everybody kind of lived into the term and just started using it so that it kind of took away the sting and the meaning of it. But now they're using it in such an angry, um, like downtrodden way in the media that it's kind of coming back to bringing that same meaning where most people who are into conspiracy theories, you know, air quotations don't like being labeled a conspiracy theorist anymore again, because it's becoming conspiracy theorist. Yeah. When you're labeled a conspiracy theorist, but you have scientific proof, you have evidence, you have, uh, even smoking gun evidence, and you have testable repeatability, and it's testable. All it takes is an MSNBC or Fox News or any of the major media to call you a, a conspiracy theorist and call that a conspiracy theory to then basically cut the legs off from under you. And then everybody who has the people that were uh, legitimately proving that the vaccines were, uh, weren't working and were causing deaths and issues and heart problems and actually you're injecting weakened allegedly weakened versions of the spike protein into your body to develop a a resistance uh when they came up with the science that basically backed that up those people were were basically ridiculed 
in mainstream. And, uh, and of course, like you said, they resurrected the term conspiracy theorist again. And uh, to be, see, people don't understand that that term was created by the CIA. Like a lot of their, their information is created to basically set up a system where people can say, well, there has to be a division. There's got to be the believers and the non-believers. So it never allows discussion because if people feel you're a conspiracy theorist or a conspiracy, uh, or that's a conspiracy theory, you'll never have the discussion, the actual discussion to suss out, well, what's the facts? What are these conspiracy facts as opposed to theories? Let's discuss it. Let's find out. Well, there'll never be a discussion because people now don't want to have the discussion. And we've gotten to a point in the world, too, where both sides can theoretically show facts to the other side, no matter what the topic is. And everybody's so set in their wheelhouse that it doesn't matter what information you have. Everybody's going to believe what they choose to believe because they're going to be able to find a way to find information that's going to fit their construct of what they want to believe in. Yeah, that's the bias. That's the bias you're talking about. And unfortunately, it's like uh, I always tell people, you can build 100 bridges and 99 are successful and one bridge fails. Well, they'll put in the mainstream media all the information about that one bridge you built that fell apart, that one car drove across it and a bridge failed. And that's what you'll be known for. Nobody knows the rest of the story. And nobody would, when you would tell people, hey, what about the 99 bridges that Shane built? They're like, oh, that's bullshit. He didn't build 99 successful bridges. He just built that bridge that failed. So everything in his life is a failure. So that's, again, the messenger, you have the wrong messenger telling you the right message. That message is now BS because of the messenger, because people can't make the distinction that you could say, hey, I'm going to show I'm going to throw you a life vest to save your life. But because you're a Republican, oh, don't take his life vest because he's a Republican or he's a Democrat. Don't take the life vest because it'll probably you'll sink like a stone. So see, people, they they can't they can't make the distinction. They, They can't they can't understand that we need to look at the evidence of the message and determine whether there's facts that support it not the people that are relating it. I've said it a million times that you got to take from both sides because more often than not, the truth lays somewhere in the middle. It's not on either side. (laughs) Well, the truth, uh, what was that saying? The truth doesn't need anybody to defend itself. The truth will defend itself. Mm -hmm. It is what it is. So I always use the term, you have to see the world as it really is, and people don't want to. They want to see it as they prefer it as they like it or as they want it to be, that's not reality. Reality is just like with Bigfoot. When I go out there, I may not like what's happening. I mean, I may be realizing that uh, Bigfoot isn't what I thought it was, but unfortunately I have to come back and say, this is how it really is. That's the world as it really is. It wasn't what I was opining or speculating about uh, in the last discussion I had. I wish it was that way, but unfortunately, you know, and that's why I think even with science, there's some scientists that are not, you know, they don't treat it like a religion. They say, hey, this is what we know now. Tomorrow it may change when we find out more evidence. Or you can do the science, or you can 
you can take and uh, take the science or believe in the science that hey, this is how the world was 100 years ago and we still believe it's that way because we don't want to investigate anymore. We don't want to find out anything new and we want to continue to teach this, what I call this diatribe in our school. We want to continue to teach memorization skills in school. We don't want to teach anything that may change how we look at the world because if we have to do that, we have to get new jobs. We might lose our funding. We, they may not need us anymore. Mm-hmm. See, and people are prepared to give that up because they want to keep things the same. And as you know, learning requires that you can't be stagnant. You can't. Things change constantly. That's what learning is all about. You pull away from the true research and what you're really trying to find out about if you're not willing to constantly change your mind depending on the information given to you. And I've always heard it, and I enjoy the saying that a good sign of intelligence is the ability to change your mind with more information. Yeah, that that's very true. It still applies today. I mean, it applied in the days of Galileo when he had to write everything in. Uh, he had to write everything in. in uh, he had to encrypt everything and hide it. So he wouldn't get burned at the stake. You know, how dare you say that the Earth is no longer the center of the solar system, that all these planets revolve around the sun and the Earth is one of those planets. You know, but it was, what, 150 or 125 years later, they found he, after he died, then they proved, yeah, that was the case. But when he was saying it, it was uh, fringe science. Or if they probably didn't even call it fringe science. They, they said he was... Uh, heretical he was a heretic to the to churches and the churches would eventually uh had they known what he was trying to uncover he would have been burned or tortured and burned at the stake well galileo was uh you see that today that's re-emerging today people are trying to come out with the truth and instead you have this like not knocking people that are flat earthers but they're re- they're coming they're dredging back stuff out of history that was accepted and 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 basically uh embraced in the time of galileo galileo they all believe they believe they accepted the flat earth that was all right so now that's coming back into into consciousness into modern consciousness and people are like hey galileo he he trans he he changed things he questioned what everybody else was saying and said well what if i construct a telescope and determine whether or not the sun is actually revolving around the earth. And he was able to prove that wasn't the case. And he had to change his mind. And he had to be careful of who he talked to it about it because everybody else would have attacked him for it. Mm-hmm. But it came to pass eventually, long after his death. But, you know, there's Galileo's right now. I think uh, in our modern times uh, that are, are there people choose not to listen to him because he goes against science. Graham Hancock being one of them, Randall Carlson being another, you know, the, uh, I call it the younger Dryas. Uh, I don't consider that a theory. They have facts to support it. So, you know, and me, I'm just a, you know, a part-time Bigfoot researcher and, <laughs> and I, I look into a lot of different things, but uh, I'm very careful when people ask me what my opinion is. I go, you know, it's very hard to say this is how it is because I may go out the next day and find out that's not so. Uh, this is what I think it is, but can I say I? Uh, you can bank on me 
And I, I always tell people, no, I says, what you need to do, instead of asking me what I think, go out, find out for yourself. Don't believe, think for yourself. And, and so then I tell those people to go out and do what I do. Go research Bigfoot, go find out for yourself, and maybe do something different than what I'm doing. It's not, you know, don't do what I do. Maybe you'll have uh, an epiphany by trying, you know, trying something different that re- creates better results or at least opens the door to some things I haven't seen, behavior, whatever. So, and people always ask me, well, what do you think Bigfoot is? Who do you think, you know, what do you think, uh, you know, are they a animal? Are they a people? Are they a mixture? Are they a hybrid? Whatever, you know, and I, I, I'm like, uh, I go with the science as much as I can. So, you know, it's. Let's go off the information that's given to you. That's all you really can do and frequently change it depending on when more information is given to you. <laughs> but I mean, even in that wheelhouse too, it still kind of bounces into everything could theoretically fit it depending on what perspective you come from. Because, you know, there's the very flesh and blood side, there's the very interdimensional side, there's like the whole biblical side aspect to it. And it's one of those things, just like our ancient history, that even if we theoretically sat down and had a conversation with a Sasquatch one day, some of this stuff is just so ancient that we'll never actually be able to really figure out like the solid answer to it. I think we will eventually. I mean, in the future, maybe as science and technology progresses, maybe not in our lifetime. Hopefully it may be great. Maybe in your lifetime, maybe not in mine. I'm a little older than you. But I I definitely feel that uh, I, I always tell people, don't, don't limit yourself about what is possible. You know, anything is possible. Uh, people can do some great, incredible things. Uh, and, and not limit themselves because of uh, their imagination, whatever you can dream, you can more often than not, if it's like I said, within reason is, is achievable. But at the same time, I, uh, I feel uh, regarding even Bigfoot, uh, you have to look at the source of the information you're reading. If you're reading, you know, Texas material books, and look at the validity of those sources. And then you got to look at the validity of the eyewitnesses you're dealing with. And then you got to look at the validity of your own evidence that you're accumulating, that you're archiving, whether it's it's documented on video, audio, firsthand anecdotal accounts. That's all evidence. And you have to you have to put it all together and say, well, from all of this, I have accumulated together. I've come up with one thing or two things that I feel bear truth or bear fruit even and and seem to uh guide me into my my next possible venture into my next you know research expedition to find out now i'm going to test this theory mm-hmm. you know when people were telling me don't feed them don't feed bigfoot oh danger danger i never had that experience now why maybe clan family group I was dealing with weren't like so hungry. They weren't, uh, you know, devastated by disease. They weren't like starving that they didn't care if I brought them apples because they could access all the other food in the wilderness that they had go into the, the gardens of the farmers, 
eat corn, have plenty, and not be bothered. Maybe in another situation, I'd go in with apples, and they'd tear me apart to get to my apples because mm-hmm. I didn't get them out of my backpack fast enough and maybe got got hurt or even killed. So I, that, I'm not saying it wasn't those other people's experiences. Oh, feed them. It developed a habituation, and they came to expect it. When I heard that, I was like, well, wait a second. Go Go to a homeless part of L.A. and start feeding the homeless on a daily basis. And I'm sure you have some nice people in there, and you got some people that aren't so nice, mm-hmm. that are tweakers. And they're going to show up at your doorstep every morning demanding that food. And if you don't have it and you're not there, they're going to break into your house. So how can we claim that Bigfoot are savages when we ourselves have done some terribly savage things? I you mean, know, honestly, more um, often than not, people need to start looking at it like a mere reflection of ourselves onto other things and realize that things aren't as animalistic as we assume that they are. Otherwise, we would also have to label ourselves as being more animalistic. And more often than not, it seems like people forget that we are animals at our root. <laughs> they think that we're like some other oh, yeah, special some, thing. Yeah, we do some treacherous things to each other. And I'm not just talking about, you know, modern man, but I look at it, the existence to this day. I mean, in, in, in recent history, recent uh, history about all the various tribal people all over the world, uh, not all of them, but some of them being headhunters. They still exist today in Papua New Guinea. You still have headhunters in the mountains of Papua New Guinea that if you go in there as a foreigner, you'll disappear. Well, wait a second. That seems to be a commonality among uh, primitive, or I should say tribal people. So how is it so far out of, the, as you say, the wheelhouse of Bigfoot? Mm-hmm. There could be some communities or groups of Bigfoot. They have no problem with taking people. And whether they eat them or whatever, doing that. And people say, well, then we want to apply that to all Bigfoots. See, this is human nature to paint everything with one brush. We do it all the time. We're like, well, that person of that ethnicity did that bad thing. So we're going to say they're all the whole the whole race is bad. Uh, you know, and that's why I feel even with Bigfoot, I'm, I have to always question, am I dealing with the ones that aren't harming me right now? like when I was here a week ago, or is this a different group that happens to come into this area? See, I have to be, I can't assume anything. I mean, who knows what could have happened to them within that last week, too. They could have went from never being shot at to being shot at within that week. Yeah, and then you show up, and I I have one spot, which is, uh, it's whether I call it a hot spot or my active site, it's one of my sites that produced the most results. And I've been going there for several years. And I go there, I might go there once a week, and then I might skip a few weeks. Sometimes I'll skip a month and not go there. But every time I go there, I have activity and results. But I always have to understand that when I go there, what happened during that time, I, like you said, the, the period of time I wasn't there. Did somebody, some people go in aggressively and start shooting at everything that moved? Did uh, people uh, go in and contaminate the creek with pesticides and they got sick? Uh, there's a whole laundry list of things that could have happened during my absence. So I have to take every time I go in there, I got to go in there with caution and not paranoia or fear, but go in there with a sense of situational awareness and go in and say, okay, you know, is this thing approaching me? Is it angry or is it approaching me because it wants to check me out? So those thoughts are always going through my head. You know, I don't run, you know, my hands waving in the air scared and then come out on uh 
uh, Dixie Cryptids with my story about how, you know, Sasquatch scared me so bad that I had to go back to my car and change my underwear. You know, I don't tell those <laughs> stories, but uh, people do and they love that. That's entertainment. And I'm not, you know, I, I'm strictly, you know, only the facts. You know, that's all I, how I do things. I don't like. That's the only way to get anywhere though, to... progressing the research is that the more people fluff it up with bullshit information, then the farther it's going to pull us away from actually discovering the, the solid truth. Yes, that's entertainment. That's what entertainment does. It it, uh, it distracts you. It makes you feel good, scares you, makes you hide under the covers when you're listening to those stories. But it doesn't really produce or doesn't pro- progress uh, the whole research community as a whole towards solving the issue. When people say, you know, well, they're, they're, they're a mystery. It's like it, this, this is going to be a cliffhanger for the next thousands of years. I look at them like you're crazy. It doesn't have to be a cliffhanger. We were able to find a way to get to the moon. We're able to discover, to this day, we're still discovering extinct species that allegedly were just extinct. Uh, we're still proving that uh, that Einstein's theory of relativity is now no longer holding water. Now it's string theory and quantum theory. They're discovering that what worked then, what was allegedly uh, a better understanding of the universe is now led us to a better, even more cohesive understanding of the universe than we had before. So that's how you progress in all research. You say, well, this is what we have now, but this is what we're missing. So we need to find what's missing. And then when we find what's missing, we discover what we have now is not, not true at all. It means something totally different because once we assemble those parts, it makes up something totally you know, it's like having a piece of that puzzle, thinking, well, that's the hand of that person in this puzzle. And you put it together and you find out, no, that's a foot. Those are the digits on a foot. So, it, you know, so that's how I try to approach it. I go, well, this is what I think I know now, but I don't go and share it on my YouTube channel and, and try to, like you said, fluff it up and say, well, you know, Bigfoot was was doing this or doing that when I find out it was really not Bigfoot at all. It was another group of Bigfoot researchers on the other side of the forest knocking back (laughs) at me, you know, so I've heard those stories too. And I was like, Oh my God. So I try to go to areas where I, I, I know to some degree of reliability, I'm usually the only one or me and the guy I'm with is the only people there. And that can be established pretty easily, at least where I live. Oh yeah. I was going to say, especially if you're doing your, uh, your hikes where you go back, back into the woods to woods too, where a lot of these people that are doing like research, they'll go on like national parks, state lands where there's like the normal hiking trails that constant regular people are walking on. I feel like the only good way to get some solid Sasquatch information encounters where you don't have to worry about nothing is if you're actually out in the deep, deep woods where you know there's not any like local hiking trails where some dude's just walking around with his dog and whooping back just because he hears somebody else whooping. He's just having fun with it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. I, uh, I mean, there I, I do go off trails and bushwhack and go places where people don't want to go, and uh, and it, it's uh, it's tough. And and I find some areas where I can just sit close enough to those areas where I don't have to go in on those game trails or what I call trails that are never used. They're basically overgrown, and I can I can use a parabolic or a thermal and get results from a distance. Where as you get older, you find better ways to do things without 
beating yourself up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, I don't have to worry about getting poison ivy every year. I don't have to worry about ticks and, you know, getting into areas where I have to deal with uh, itchweed and thorn bushes. I can, I can, I can catch movements and language from afar, even when they're hiding. I have a one parabolic that it's a mile and a half to two miles away. I can pick up somebody walking through the forest. It's that's powerful. The parabolic, I can pick up uh, somebody talking from over two miles away at just (laughs) the strength we're talking right now. So that would explain some of the things I've heard where I'm in an area, one access only, only five cars will park there. And there is no other access to this wilderness area. And I will hear voices in some cases, several hundred yards in some cases, a mile to three quarters of a mile in, and they don't sound like a, you know, a homo sapien talking. Don't sound like a modern human talking. And I played this, to a friend of mine and he, he said, boy, he says, he told me what it's, what he thought they were saying. But, uh, I was like, I, you know, he, he said, it sounds like they were swearing in English, but it didn't, <laughs> to me, it sounded like, like a guttural type of swearing, like something that had massive lungs. Uh, and I was like, yeah, maybe they are saying, uh, you know, he said uh, it sounded like they were saying, oh, son of a bitch or something like that. <laughs> and I was like, boy, I said, I, I hope I can prove there's some big guy in there, uh, massive linebacker. And he just, he tripped over something and he, he swear, swore. <laughs> he, he stubbed just, his somebody toe. Just dropped him off. <laughs> he stubbed his toe. Somebody dropped him off, and, you know, and then took off with the car and said, I'll be back in two hours to pick you up. <laughs> and that has happened too. I've run into people. Uh, back in the woods, uh, one of them, it was, uh, I was, uh, three quarters of a mile in and I ran into, uh, a man with his son and he says, I came to visit. I haven't lived here for years. I came back to visit my brother and I go, there are no cars parked in the parking lot except me. He goes, oh, my brother dropped me off and he was back there bushwhacking with the son. <laughs> this is during the daytime though. When I, when I heard, uh, this, the sound I'm talking telling you about this language this was at dusk it was getting dark and it was uh there was nobody there but it was way back and it was uh overgrown the only way to get back there was with a machete at that area and i was thinking who the hell would that be so again i can't prove beyond a shadow of a doubt but all those little indications sort of help you in the research they sort of they have a culminating point that you're eventually going to arrive at and you can you know prove it later on to yourself you find prints structures things that are i call corroborating evidence that sort of backs up the other uh what you heard on parabolic it may back it up or at least reinforce it and make you realize well maybe it was the target so that does help you but uh you know, even the prints, the casted prints I came across, uh, a trackway of 140 prints along a creek bed. Uh, I could have gone into a casting frenzy, but I just picked out the most important prints. And I, they had the classic metatarsal hinge or break in them and the oversized toes. And all I could figure is, is if they were people, human beings like us, they had a lot of foot mutations. 
So that led me to believe that there's something else going on here. You, you, you have to think, look at that and say, well, you know, I've seen a lot of people in bare feet on the beaches and in gyms and everywhere else. And, I, and I, you try to rack your brain with thinking, why are you seeing all these prints with all these foot mutations, oversized toes, uh, metatarsal breaks, super narrow heels, like they were born with a genetic mutation. And you're going, if you ever saw anybody in your family with that kind of foot, you would say, hey, uh, you need to get, get that looked at. There's something, you know, you got, you need a prosthetic or something to aid you in walking. <laughs> and that's, uh, so that, that was the point I was making with the, the, the prints I came across. I came across a trackway along a creek bed of, I, I guesstimated about 140. There probably were more, but uh, it was incredible, you know. Say and the stride pattern, two of them too. That uh, you got to look at them and wonder, like, what person could logically walk the distance more often than not that you see between the the footprints because they're wider footprints because yeah, it's a bigger animal lengths. with a bigger stance. Yeah, I, I found both. I found stride lengths were like ours, two and a half, anywhere from two and a half to three feet, stretching it uh, for a big man, and then some stride lengths were four and a half to five feet between step be what I call step length. So you see those and you're going, wait a second. And they're in a, what I call uh, the tightrope tight rope pattern where it's one foot directly in front of the other. They don't walk uh, basically straddled like we do, you know, where you have a gap between your feet, uh, what I call duck footed or you don't, they're not walking uh, in a straddled pattern. Uh, more often, and I see that occasionally they do do that, but more often than not, when they're walking with one foot in front of the other, what they call the compliant gait, uh, many times there'll be two and a half, three feet to four feet between each step. And they're, you know, in line with each other, you know, and the toes are angled out to the left and right, what I call duck footed. And some aren't, some are, the toes are directly in line with each other. Now I tried to walk that way on a level on a level floor, but human beings' knees and hips are not made that way. So what? At some point, you might pull off a couple steps, but eventually you you end up losing your balance and falling. What's so a, I, from uh, your research? Have you found like a like a reason why they seem to walk in a tightrope pattern? Uh I'd say it's a mechanics of how their knees and legs are and their hips. They're different than us because they have to walk over uh, irregular topography, irregular terrain, and they have to walk. And it sort of gives them the ability, because they have a metatarsal break, they have a hinged foot. It's almost like a prehensile foot. Their foot shapes itself to the ground. So that makes sense. That's how I was able to explain to myself or at least understand why I don't always hear them when they're walking on ground that has sticks and branches littered all over the ground. I imagine myself walking on my hands and having to be able to bend my hands around sticks if I had perfect balance. Humans, because we have a flat foot or we walk with shoes, when we walk on grounds, irregular or not, with sticks and branches on it, we're always breaking the twigs. We're always snapping sticks. These creatures, they can conform their feet. They don't want to be heard. 
They can conform their feet. I've seen them where the heel is dug in deep and the front of the foot is dug in deep and they'll have that mound in the middle. Uh, it's it just, we, we can't do that. I tried to duplicate that in sand and you can't do it unless you're cheating. I've always wondered too if that's also partly that kind of helps them grip the ground more because you always hear them taking straight up off a ridge or going straight up a hill and it seems like that would be the most logical reason of how they're able to do that and climb up so quick is because not only are they able to grip the ground with their hands as they're climbing up but they're usually gripping the ground with their feet to keep the traction so they can move up faster. Oh yeah, their feet are, you know, if you, you know, a human's foot, you know, we have our our arch which our arches are are raised, or if you do a lot of walking on cement, or you're a policeman who does a lot of walking, you eventually get flat feet. But they, uh, you can't, you can't adjust your feet. You know, if I walk through my yard and there's a bunch of, there are a bunch of walnuts and hickory nuts laying on my level grass in my yard, the level yard. I walk on a walnut. You know, I it hurts my foot. I, I can't conform my foot to the walnut or a stick. Yeah, they they actually, like you said, they grab the ground if they have to whether they're going uphill or they can conform their foot to the branches or sticks on the ground. And so just sort of curve around it and just walk. And, uh, and a lot of times you'll just see the front of their foot impression. You won't see the heel, Well, they're just walking what we would call tippy toes, but it's more of the front of the foot. So they're where they've raised the heel, but they have the f- flexibility to bend their foot both ways, not just down, but up. They can bend it up and down, uh, try that with your foot i mean your foot has limited amount of flexibility with the toes but that's about it you can't really bend anything else and so i've noticed that that uh if they want to be heard walking into an area that's littered with branches and sticks in a forested area they can walk in completely silent but yet when i walk through there maybe one third their weight one fourth their weight i can't I can't be quiet. I can't, you know, unless I'm walking between every stick and every branch, it would take me, you know, an hour to go, you know, 10 yards, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, not to be heard. So, but they're, they're doing something like this and uh, they don't, they hide their prints. I think they also cover their prints that they can, they conceal their prints also when they leave prints. I think they can, they conceal them. They, I think they uh, they cover them up. Uh, I believe they also put they step in areas where they won't leave prints, like uh, when they're walking along creek beds. They'll walk mostly on the rocky shale and the rocks and the boulders. They won't walk in the sand. Uh, they use their fingerprints a lot. Their fingers, not fingerprints, but their fingers. And a lot of times I'll see what appears to be a set of three fingers or four fingers or even two fingers dug into the soil or sand along a creek bed. And on further investigation, find out they're not deer impressions or animal impressions. These are finger impressions. That just shows a level of intelligence too, that they might purposely be trying to make their handprints look like other animal tracks. Yeah. And I think that when they go quadrupedal, that's when they're using their fingers. And that's when you just ignore it. You go past it and you go, oh, that's just a deer impression or that's a rack, you know, that's an impression from some particular animal and you'll ignore it. But they're walking along the edge of a creek bank 
or an area where it's rocky and they'll be they'll be on all fours and you'll just see remnants of fingertip or toe tip impressions and you have to be an incredibly good tracker to see that for what it is and say well that's not a cloven hoof those are two fingers and i have proof of that i have i've showed this to a a colleague of mine and they say hey not every deer track is a deer track you need to pay attention and so uh those are some of the things i think they not only have the capability of doing i think there's they're teaching their they're young to do this uh again now that's speculation on my part but i'm thinking how else would they know this and continuing you know, by, down uh, generations, just like humans, assumably they'll just keep learning, progressing, keep getting better and better. Because even going back to with like encounters, it seemed like people were having a lot more encounters where they were just out in the open back in like 70s, 80s, where now they're a lot more hidden. So again, assumably they're going to advance as a culture the same as we would, but in a different way. So they're going to get more sneaky and better at hiding as we, again, get just more technologically advanced because that's our main focus. Yeah, and I, I don't think, I think if there are people, which I have come to do, you know, to myself, prove they're a culture, prove to myself they have language. Well, then, therefore, they're not born. They're born with something, some capabilities, but I don't think they're born. The little ones are, you know, born and they automatically know how to hide their prints, how to deceive trackers and make them think these are different animals as opposed to them. I think they, they, this is a learned skill, just like with our children, only they're using the forest as their classroom. They're using the wilderness as their classroom. You know, they, they, we have, still have to teach our children how to write, how to, how to speak language, how to understand language. So obviously they do that also. Uh, and, it, and it varies because uh, their description of the world is way different than ours. Uh, the objects that they have in their description of the world, you know, are, you know, they have different names for obviously different things. They don't have to learn what a computer hard drive is. They don't have to learn what an SD card is. They don't have to learn any of that. So put their focus somewhere else. (laughs) Yeah. They focus somewhere else. And I don't believe that makes them dumber or makes them primitive. I think it's just a different type of landscape of, of learning, which uh, it'd be great to learn that as a human being, because, I think ages ago uh, they did this with native uh, with the Aborigines, native people, and they taught them how to track. They taught them things that uh, historically are passed down by the indigenous people to uh, the newer generations. I mean, there's even that, Native American the, lore about them teaching them the ways of the land, and like that story I was talking about earlier. Um, I had somebody on my show at one point that was talking about how he was hearing about how there was a Native American lore about you would go to a certain part in the woods. And you would sing a certain song and you'd see a salamander and it was supposed to be a, um, a water baby or something specific like that. And that was supposed to basically open the door that basically tells like a Sasquatch they could come. And then you'd sing this other specific song, which would lure them in and basically say that it's okay. And then you'd sing them this other separate song, which would pretty much be your way of making a connection with them. And then you would touch fingertip to fingertip and they would bestow knowledge on you about how to basically like use the land. Like this area is not going to be good to fish in because there's going to be a, um, a bunch of issues with contaminants in the soil and this and that. And yeah, they, they would pick up knowledge from them. Yeah. Every tribe has their own narrative about Bigfoot, how they relate to them. Some consider them dangerous and children and women snatchers. 
some tribes consider them the keeper of the forest and they're wise and they protect the animals and even though they do hunt themselves and that they uh, teach them things. So I think uh, you have to take that into account that uh, that it's uh, an understanding or how they would translate that and understand it and 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 then that would become part of the historical narrative they would pass down but uh i think it depends you know like the tribes and where the area the regions they lived in how the bigfoot were in those areas and that determined their relationship with them some not so good they were savage cannibals in other areas they were friend and they friends and they traded with them and they even uh in, got involved in their powwows and uh I even had my one friend who's Native American. He told me uh, we were asked. I was talking one day with him about the uh, the Ojibwa and there how they build their teepees. And he goes, "Well, we have two types." We uh, he says we have among the Cherokees, he was Cherokee and Ojibwe. He says we have the twelve pole, the uh, twelve lodge pole teepee, and we have the eighteen lodge pole teepee. He says, uh, and uh, and I said, so how how did you come about? choosing either 12 or 18 poles to build your teepee. And he says it was handed down by the, uh, what he called the original people. And I go, who are the original people? He says, who do you think they are? He says, they're the ones that taught us how to build the teepee. And I go, you're talking about Bigfoot? And he goes, yeah, so exactly. He says, some tribes call them the uh, ancient ones, some call them the original people, depending on the tribe. And also ancient and original, ancient may have a different meaning from one tribe to the next. It may mean their actual indigenous forefathers, as opposed to other tribes. When they say the ancient people, they may be referring to the forest people. Mm-hmm. But he called them the original people, and I said the original people. Yeah, he says they were here when we came. So I, I said, so you're talking about Sasquatch? He goes, yeah. He says, who do you think taught us how to build our teepees? And I said, I had never thought about that. He says, you know, all those teepee structures you see in the forest. He says, we can, they were the original ones. They, they built them first. He says, we just made them look prettier because we put buffalo hide and elk skins on them and made them look, you know, more weatherproof. They could stand up to it, you know, hurricane, hurricane force winds. But uh, I was like, yeah, I says, I, I've seen teepees, you know, in the forest. And I didn't know they were, I, I just thought Bigfoot were making them. I didn't know. You know, they were doing this for, you know, gener- ages and centuries. But that was his take on it from his tribe. Now, I have to be, again, I just can't take it because those are stories that are handed down. And Indians don't ever make a mistake and don't ever uh, mistranslate or have erroneous things pop up in their teachings. Because all I had to do is look at the... What is it now? Five thousand uh, contradictions and mistakes in our own Bible <laughs> to realize that, uh, and they were an ancient people too, and they did th- they put down things, stories that were contradictory, contradictory to each other, and and so to say that uh, people without a written language wouldn't possibly make a mistake, take something in maybe embellish it a little or take something, uh, delete something away from it 
it would be I'd be foolish as a, an investigator not to consider that because uh, you know people say well yeah but Indians they they historically you know they tell their their verbal their their stories verbally from generation to generation and they never every word is exact that may be the case among the elders but I think I played the the game of telephone enough to know that how people relate a story after it's been repeated, you know, ad infinitum, ad infinitum, that story changes. Now it's not the same story. So I have to consider that if I'm going to be serious about doing the research and saying, well, what are the facts? Why is one tribe saying this and another tribe is saying something totally different? I mean, even for not even that, just the, the straight word of mouth telephone aspect, but just even looking at the Bible, for example, just people who are in power changing it because they needed to fit their own narrative. And who's to say how many different like tribe leaders theoretically could have changed the background of a story to fit their narrative. And then a couple generations down, you know, the story is completely different from what it was. And now you have five different narratives of the same story, but they're all based off the same thing. It was just five different chiefs changed it to fit what they were trying to portray at the time. Yeah, uh, and that's what people need to understand. Uh, again, we're people, and there is no ethnic race that was perfect. I don't care if they were the Jews, the Iroquois, the Algonquin, uh, you know, the Brits, the Celts, whatever. We all have that. Hum- we try to, by humanizing things, we change things immediately. You know, you think about the cargo cult and how they made basically these structures that look like the planes that landed there during World War One, I, I believe it was. or Yeah, I think it was World War One. They landed the planes and they left. But when they were coming to the islands to set up a, a defense in the islands against the invading Japanese, they gave them cans of spam and they gave them uh, food. They gave them all this stuff. Then they left never to return. And uh, the cargo, uh, the people there on that island, those islands, created a, a religion based on these visitors that they thought were gods, and they weren't. They were just, uh, they're not understanding or uh, understanding technology. They didn't understand what technology was. So they built it into this wooden replica of this uh, plane that was what this man flew. And they uh, it became the cargo cult religion, and the wooden plane was sort of their idea of a bird with a fixed wing. So that was uh, it was it was false. It was a false religion, you know. But yet, to this day, I guess some of the survivors, people that are still, you know, old enough, are still they still believe that they're going to return someday. The uh, the people that visited them <laughs> in these. Uh, these planes are going to come back and uh, I forget the name of the gentleman, but they actually named the religion after him. That was his name. Uh, and I was like, wow, you know, in that short period of time, we're only talking uh, less than a hundred years. Now imagine, you know, extrapolate that over five, 6,000, 8,000 years, the native American culture and their, their handing down of their historical narratives, how much that must've radically changed. You know, but. so I don't, uh, and, and people are people. 
like you said, they'll do things to politicize things to make themselves seem more powerful, more have giving getting them giving themselves more control, and potentially uh, making them uh, live on after their death in the annals of history. Mm-hmm. So people want to do that. They want to like, hey, I want to, I want to set my mark in. Nobody will ever forget what I did. Yeah, like the King James Bible, prime example. <laughs> His name's put right yeah. on top of it, and the main split between that was the fact that he wanted to be able to divorce his wives because he was tired of killing them because they weren't producing male heirs. <laughs> yeah, I know. That was, uh, yeah, that had definitely, he uh, he weaponized it for his own good. Mm-hmm. In a way, he, uh, it's sad, but that's, that's true. Humanity is, uh, you know, people say, well, hey, you know, uh, you know, evil is something outside yourself. It's, uh, it's the devil. It's hell. I go, no, no. I said, you don't have to look very far. I says, it's just look in the mirror, human beings. I said, we're, we're our own worst enemy. We're, uh, we're, we're, you know, I'm not saying we personally are devils, but there are people among us that it would be viewed as very evil and very, uh, people that want to, uh, amass and enslave and lie. And the worst enemy to those people are, is the truth truth is their enemy and so you're you know I've, I've worked for corporations i was asked to lie and uh i got in trouble because i would not lie and that's just how it's sad state of affairs when you have to tell your own boss that didn't your mom ever teach you it's not nice to lie <laughs> that it's you know when you have to tell your own boss who is actually trying to promote you trying to get you to lie so he could benefit from that and I had to tell one boss that I says, I, I said, you didn't your mom ever tell you not to lie? You know, you had to like resort to treating them like a child and say, okay, no, go, let's go back 30 years when you were like 12 years old and you got caught stealing or you lied to your grandmother and you got caught. I had it like related to that. And then he, he was like, he had no answer you know, other than like, oh, I wish I could have got him to lie, you know, and that's. So I figured that we're running at about two and a half hours or so. And with that last thing that you were just talking about, I figured that it might be a good opportunity that I always like to do words of wisdom from the guests to the listeners. And you've been, you know, preaching, of course, some wonderful words of wisdom and you've had some awesome things to say. And I've really enjoyed this conversation. But if there is one thing in particular that you could use as words of wisdom, well, what would they be to the listeners? My words of wisdom, I wish I would have invented uh, or I should say created these words but it was passed down to me from a very wise man and uh, those words are stay relaxed at all times thereby you gain power and might over yourself that's the best advice I could give anybody I like that honestly it kind of has like the same uh, tones as one of my favorite sayings that's uh, it's better to be a samurai in a garden than a gardener on a battlefield where it's that ability to keep your peace, but still be able to carry yourself properly while doing so. Yes. Yeah. That aligns well with that. That's uh so that's the best. Uh, yes. Thereby gain, uh, stay relaxed at all times, thereby gain might over themselves. I always like to substitute the word in power, but I like the word might because it, it means a lot of different things. 
So if you can stay relaxed at all times, you gain control of yourself. You, you can never, in the worst situation in the world, as fearful and paranoid as it could make you, when you are relaxed, you know, as they always say, the uh, usually the most relaxed person in the in the in the group is the one that makes the best decisions, and that's the person that you want to follow, or at least you person you want to learn from. And so, uh, when I've wanted to shit my pants or do something out of anger, I just by being relaxed, you can think it out, calm and collect, and usually make the right decision. Yes. I think parents t- should tell their children that more frequently instead of like angst, using angst to like push them into dangerous things. I'm one of those parents in particular that I usually tell my daughter whenever she's freaking out that I'm not, she needs to relax. And then I'll sit down and I'll talk to her like an adult. And it's honestly helped a lot now that when she was a lot younger, she'd have a lot of temper tantrums. And now that she's about seven or so, as soon as I say that, she kind of knows the deal. She'll go, she'll sit in a room for a couple of minutes, she'll come back calm and collective, and she'll sit down and actually have a conversation with me. And I've told her that the only way that you're ever going to get anywhere is if you're able to project your thoughts properly. And if you're pent up and you're angry and you're feeling all these emotions at once and you're unable to, to tear through them, then you're never going to be able to project what you're trying to say and the other person's never going to take what you're trying to say correctly. So that's a huge aspect of that too, is being able to portray yourself correctly through being calm because you're not blindsided by all of your emotions all at once. And and I even remember it would be the people that were outspoken and promoting themselves, self-promoting, aggrandizing. uh, And the uh, boss in the room would pick the leader and he would pick somebody that was out in the back of the room, quiet. And he would pick him because he's the coolest head in the room. And he would become the new leader. And it'd be great if that's how the military was, wouldn't it? <laughs> right. The coolest head in the room. There might not be any wars. Yeah, you know? you're right. <laughs> they say we don't have to invade. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just sit back, observe, and see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, with that yes. also, for anybody that's enjoyed the conversation, uh, where can they come and find your work at? And where can they come and find you at if they're trying to you know, contact you to possibly share some encounters or different other research they've gotten into? Yeah, you can contact me either on uh, Instagram at, uh, uh, I think it's D. Schneider, S-C-H-N-E-I-D-E-R, you and you, those exact words, dot 52. Uh, That's my my handle on IG. My YouTube uh, channel is Unacknowledged and Unknown on YouTube, three separate words unacknowledged and unknown and you can email me at d schneider 454 at gmail.com and uh other than that i can't give you my zip code but uh <laughs> i live in illinois uh not far from uh about two and a half about two hours from chicago so uh so yeah if anybody wants to get a hold of me uh there's three methods you can contact me and i'd be more than happy to to help you or share what I know. And uh, I'll of course I I you, include the links down in the show description too, for anybody that wants to come and check them out. They can uh, hopefully find them quick and easy. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yep. Yeah. But uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. I really appreciate you coming on the show and I'm really looking forward to the next time we get to talk. So thanks again for coming on and making the time. I appreciate that Shane. Thank you too.
If you guys enjoyed the show, don't forget to drop that five-star rating. And uh, if you guys need to get a hold of me for any reason, be it you want to be a guest on the show, uh, you want to throw an idea for the show, anything like that, uh, you can do so through social media. Like I said earlier in the show, my most active one is through Instagram. Uh, you can also shoot an email to inquiriesofourrealitypodcast at outlook.com. Uh, you can also go to the link tree up at the top. There's a submission form. Uh, fill it out and that'll go directly to my email. And uh, if you guys email me more often than not, it seems like everything seems to go to the spam or junk folder. So don't forget to check that because uh, I do respond to every single email I get. It's just a matter of it hopefully not getting lost in your guys' inbox. So keep an eye out because I do respond within a day or two of you guys sending me any email. Everything that I've mentioned, all available under the link tree. That's L-I-N-K-T-R period E-E slash inquiries of our reality podcast. And with that, hope you guys enjoyed the conversation and I'll catch you on the next one. Have a good night, everybody. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.